So it's been three weeks, and I still don't know what Putin wants in Ukraine. What does he want in Ukraine? At least, that's what the <laughs> that's what I keep seeing in the headlines. You know, uh, at least off, off on the side of the Western media, uh, some Western outlet trying to encourage me to read an article that yeah, will right. apparently explain what is it that Putin wants in Ukraine. I know. Is he after the? What do they sell in Ukraine? Is he? They make good cheese there. Does he want the cheese? The bread. He's after the their wheat. bread. Good, good bread. Good bread. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're confused. It's like, well, he's trying to get a piece of Ukraine. Well, he's got two pieces already, but it looks like he wants some more pieces. He's hungry. The only question is, we're not sure how many pieces of the Ukraine he wants. Right. He's just hungry. That's all. Yeah. He's well, a, he's another hungry. classic one. Um, I got one here. Actually, I'll bring it up later. It's uh, BBC yesterday. Getting inside Putin's head. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but they've been, they had pieces, not just a recent thing, they've had pieces like that for years yeah, in yeah. Western media. Like, let's get inside his head. What's in What is going on we're in there? Per- we're perfectly capable of understanding what's going on in his head, you know? I mean, we just need to try and figure it out here, you know? Well, it's obviously not something good, right? It's something weird. Like, what's going on definitely in his head? Weird. The only time you'd have to ask that question is when you're concerned about someone's. Uh, Mental health. What's going on in his head? There's something weird going on there, isn't there? Something not right. Like yeah. he's, I've heard people on Twitter. He's sick. He looks sick to me. Is he? Is he? And in that article, actually, in the BBC, uh, we could pull it up. Actually, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, um, is it on? Uh, I remember. I remember. Uh, what's driving Putin? <laughs> oh yeah. What's driving Putin? Agents seek to get inside Putin's agents. There's yeah. there's a whole team of agents, you know, yeah. trying to get inside Putin's head, and that may even include remotely, you know, uh, by uh, psychic projecting or That's something like that. That's from a few years ago. There's serious stuff about using tech or remote viewers in the West to the try. The men who stare at goats. That kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely. Well, they're not saying that in the BBC, no, Neil. That's a conspiracy theory too hard. But there, there it is. Well, um, I, I love for something. Western agents seek to get inside Putin's head. Um, interesting, actually, <laughs> seek to literally get inside Putin's head. <clears throat> uh, and the uh, evidence that this is a bullshit article by a bullshit uh, supposed journal, a journalist called Gordon Correa um, is in the fifth, sixth uh, paragraph there talking so it's all like his isolation he's sick he's not good you know so anyway his isolation has been evident in pictures of his meetings such as when he met president emmanuel macron the pair at far ends of a long table this guy obviously doesn't even read the news right that he's supposed to be producing right right because when that picture came out soon afterwards it was explained by the french government that the reason they were at far end of a long table was because Macron f- refused, he was asked to take a PCR test to see if he had the COVID and him or his handlers or whoever, his his uh, advisors w- did not want him to take a PCR test because then Putin himself would, ha- would have access to Macron's DNA mm-hmm. and he would produce millions of Macrons or something like that he would, or he would like Whatever he would do, or something find the skeletons in his family closet. Maybe, or he would develop a, a an ethnic specific weapon, a Macron specific weapon to mm. take him out, or some bullshit like that. So the reason, so Macron wouldn't take a PCR test, wouldn't give uh, the theory being he wouldn't give uh, the Russians access to his DNA, and that's why he was at the end of a far, t- far end of a table. But this bullshit journalist from the BBC, of which there are many, decided to spin that without even apparently doesn't know that 
which was a, an official statement by the by the French government, uh, and he spun it into Putin's isolated. Did you see how far he was sitting from Macron? He really doesn't. Macron doesn't like him. That's why he sat at the far end of the table. That's the level of bullshit yeah. that people are getting yeah, yeah. in the Western media. Well, the more sober analysis, <laughs> I'm laughing as I say that, the more sober take on it was that um, this might speak to the extent of the effect of COVID-19 lockdown and isolation has had on Putin over the last few years, that he's paranoid about his health. Uh, and on the surface, that would be simply that he is among those who's particularly scared of the virus, right? Um, but even that take isn't... Uh, Putin would know, you know full well. Now, th- the thing is, there is, some, there is something to be discussed about that issue because Russia did go... At one point, Putin was wearing the full hazmat suit as he visited sick people with COVID in the hospital. You know, he went in in his yellow hazmat to distinguish him from everyone else. So there were photos of full-scale bio-warfare scenario in Russia mm-hmm. and measures taken to protect the president and all that stuff. So we can, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but there's something seriously serious about COVID-19 that not just the Russian government, but obviously the Chinese government took mm-hmm. as well. Joe... <laughs> they're looking at you they're not looking at me <laughs> good time <laughs> I've got a good timing timing going on here <laughs> anyway this fact is I'm hungry this is serious I'm hungrier than Putin <laughs> I need two Ukraines right now well we better show them wait what I was laughing at <laughs> Jeez, there I'm, it's a lollipop alright get over it god damn it you can't even have a lollipop uh, anyway yeah, yeah. Back so, to, um, yes. No, no. So the Russian explanation for that—that that they asked Macron to take a PR to, to PCR test and he wouldn't. Yeah. Hence the forty feet of table. But that exposes also it in its, doesn't in the whole, sound like the whole story. Well, it exposes the whole spooky aspect of of the way governments run, work and how they all distrust each other and how it's in the background and has been in the background for a very long time. That they're all afraid of some kind of a, uh, yeah, some kind of a. a, a specific weapon or something that someone could produce based on having access to your DNA. They take it seriously. Macron himself wouldn't do a PCR test because he didn't want to give access, the Russians access to his, to his DNA. I mean, that right there blows open the whole... I mean, if you apply that to the whole COVID situation and, and, and kind of infer what that means or, what, or how these people think, as a matter of course about bioweapons and all that kind of stuff and genes and DNA and modification of, of viruses and different pathogens and stuff. It's just par for the course for them, right? They take it very seriously. But for the rest of the world, it was complete nonsense. What? what? Made in a lab? Virus made in a lab? Nobody does that. Mm. It's like people are so, so ignorant like, about how the world actually works. It's ridiculous. But and there's no justification for it. There's no excuse for it because all the information is available to people, but they don't want to look at it. You know, They want to live in rosy, smiley, happy, unicorn, bunny land, you know? Um, and you can live in that for a little while, but you should pay attention to how the world actually works whenever you come out of, you know, rainbow unicorn land. So, um, yeah, you said China and Russia took it seriously, and other countries obviously took it seriously, and just a little update on that. We've said this before, and I've said it, I said it ages ago, actually, probably like almost two years ago, that when this first came out, the strongest evidence, at least circumstantial evidence, in, in the absence of actual hard evidence, which is available somewhere, that this virus was made, in a, this COVID virus, SARS-CoV-2, was made in a lab deliberately uh, and released, prob- almost undoubtedly released deliberately. 
in the absence of that hard evidence, the strongest evidence that this was uh, made in a lab was seen in the initial response of governments to the news, particularly that came out of China because that's where it was dropped, dropped in China. Chinese had first access to it, had a look at it, immediately knew by looking at it because you know when you look at a virus, that whether it's of natural origin or whether it's being tweaked, they saw that it was tweaked and they activated a their bio-warfare protocols. There's no time to wait and see what happens. You do it now. That spread then. The rest of the world, governments and in, in, in the rest of the world got spooked, especially in Europe. Saw them doing that, took the Chinese at their word that this was serious, um, that it was made in a lab. And you saw in Italy, you saw the military coming in because <clears throat> a bio-warfare protocol of any government is military. It's the military that takes care of it. It's not the government. It's not the civilian government. It's the military. They, take, they go in in their hazmat, hazmat suits with their decontamination um, protocols and they remove bodies. And that's precisely what they did in Italy, if you remember, in uh, late March and early April last year. It had not, and it served to freak out the population. And nobody asked the question at the time, why is the military, why is the Italian government sending the military in to remove bodies? Right. For a... For, uh, and why did the Russians send in military biowarfare experts to northern Italy right. in early March right. 2020? To, to investigate. Yeah. Well, this, this then – well, let me just – so 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 For me, that blows open the whole thing that it was made well, in a lab. Was there then justification, albeit for a different reason, for the severe clampdown on public discussion? Yeah, for of, sure. Of, well, you know. of the seriousness of COVID-19, of its existence at all, to start with, of its seriousness – and then of the measures to contain it. Was that the reason for the what? (coughs) The the justification for the kinds of clampdown on public discussion of this. No. No. Why? Well, if if, if, if it's DEFCON 5 on bio-warfare situation... Yeah, then you tell everybody. You don't hide it from them. In the absence of that, though, because, you know, governments, maybe they have a like paternalistic view of the world and they see rightly as people as children in many cases. Okay. So from that perspective, are they say, not going to go? Let's pretend this is, an, this is just a normal virus. Weak. Yeah. Well, I would say, yeah. I mean, you can go with a paternalistic thing, but given that most of the people who are uh, putting the lockdown on discussion about it and censoring people on uh, social media, talking about the origins and what was really going on here, that came from the West. And this virus most likely came from the West, was made in a Western lab, probably in Fort Detrick in the US, and dropped on China's doorstep. Now, the primary motivation for people in the West doing that is not so much about not spooking the population. That's maybe a secondary consideration. The first consideration is not revealing, not letting out the idea or starting the ball rolling on public awareness and public discussion of this was definite, This definitely came from a lab. Okay, which lab did it come from? Who did it? And why did you release it? That's your motivation for not wanting discussion on it. Right, okay. So they did, also, uh, they did lift the barrier to that last summer, but only in the context of, of China it did being it. China did Yeah, it. of course, yeah. Right. Anyway, so that's just on that small point. The topic of today's show is Russia, China, the New World Order. That's a hell of a, yeah. a statement. Do you want to do a quick sit rep on Ukraine? Do you, not, do you not like the New World Order? Well, no. We, No one likes the New World Order, right? No one in... Uh, no one who's a dissident. It's a West. bad word. It's a bad word. It's a bad term. Well, as I explained in the, uh, the blurb of the show, you know, there are, there are two overlapping conceptions of it. On the one hand, you've got George H.W. Bush, 1991 speech to mm-hmm. State of the Union after the collapse of the USSR, which mm-hmm. he declares a new world order. You know, obviously the American establishment has a vision of it where 
<clears throat> it's the unipolar moment. There's no one but us. And then they go on, as you've explained in recent shows, to publish papers on rebuilding America's defenses and preventing any peer competitor from ever rising to challenge us now that we have this yeah. f- apparent open field I'll for give you total another, supremacy. Another quote of hubris just on that line. President Bush's second inaugural address when he was re-elected in 2000, after he was re-elected in 2005, um, at the height of the Iraq war, said, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nature and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. Ending tyranny. Seek and support the growth of democratic, democratic movements and institutions in every nature and culture in the world. Right. It's a total vision, very much a totalizing vision. We are going to ruin the world. And <clears throat> our everybody... values are universal, and our, what we define as tyranny most importantly, is what is tyranny, the, dic- the dictionary definition for all languages. And um, everybody must toe the line. Yeah. Or you're in trouble. Now, the, that's the predominant establishment, new world order, i.e. a good thing, a good conception, something we should all share. The whole world will eventually share if we get our way. Then there's an important distinction to be made where a new world order was a byword in dissident Western opinion for the overarching conspiracy theory of, namely, that U.S. establishment, but not necessarily U.S. per se, a global clique, globalists, Davos said, etc., envisioning that total vision for the world, not America ruling ruling supreme per se, but this non-internationalist clique. Yeah, America being the point of the the tip of the spear, basically, and and for enforcing it, certainly it was going to be under... Uh, an American mandate, basically. The rest yeah, of the although world. the main dissident framing of it was from the 1960s forward, from the John Birch Society all the way up to, you know, um, what was his name? Oh, Tex Mars. Mm. Among other famous sort of 70s, 80s conspiracy theory writers who then gave rise to Alex Jones, who directly is kind of an apostle of these guys, where, where it's the UN... That's the tip of the yeah. spear. Um, well, that was know. just that was their best guess for a globalist. Their, their yeah. be, the, the easiest go-to thing for a, a kind of global organization, right? Was the UN? The UN's global, so it's going to be the UN. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. It's it, it is it today. Is a, it's slightly different. It's the WEF. The WEF. With, Davos, with have reasonable uh, grounds for saying that because of the incredible amount of statements from world leaders yeah. and Schwab what's clear whether it's the Bilderbergers as it used to be or yeah. the Davos set or the Trilateral Commission Trilateral, or the Council of Foreign Relations or the WEF or whatever or, or just America or some there's obviously a group of people somewhere with those ideas and they've been pushing them under different names basically like we just described for, for the past 20 or 30 years or more and um, yeah they're kind of like they seem to be a transnational kind of group of people or certain they're globalists as Dallas Jones like to call, likes to call them the globalists are out to get us. These are people who see the world as, you know, their oyster and, and they're going to they're gonna rule it and control it. And, um, and yeah. what? Well, Lavrov actually, in a, in a, I think it was yesterday or the day before, we could give a talk to RT. You can't really see RT videos very easily anymore. Um, although they're on the RT website, but they usually be on YouTube, but they're not allowed to be on YouTube anymore. So it was on a Telegram channel I saw it where RT basically in English and he the whole interview was in English for 30 minutes and he described it as that the US was planning to um, you know mem- uh, kind of uh, manifest the American experiment 
around the world, basically. America, as the melting pot, he described it, um, as it likes to, in, in right. a positive way, it likes to describe itself as a melting <coughs> melting pot of all cultures, whatever. Bring you know. all your, your, and all of them together. We are a shelter for all of you, Statue of Liberty. Under wonderful yeah. American values and all that kind of stuff, that it was, it's clear to him, and has been clear to him in the Russian government for a long time, that the plan was that this melting pot idea that, you know, is exemplified by um, by the US, in the US, has been in the process of being, you know, um, uh, rolled out around the world. And he said, and of course, with them doing the melting. <laughs> a good way of putting it. Yeah. And of course, that, that naturally seamlessly um, <clears throat> incorporates the transhumanist um, melting pot where Klaus Schwab's like practical orgasm when he's speaking about, you know, the implants in the brain. Oh, he's there giving talks like, you know, rich Arabs in Dubai. Mm. Oh, it's the future of the nanobots and the implants in your brain. Oh. <laughs> and he, he thinks they're all on with them. Yeah, yeah. Now, Schwab, obviously not American, but it's the kind of, um, it's the merger. You know, Kissinger probably, is he still alive? He's probably into that too. You know, the transhumanist will transcend everything and it'll be all one melting pot. Mm. With technology, one nation. Mass <coughs> migration doesn't matter. In fact, let's encourage it because we'll, we'll quickly yeah. break down those anachronistic well, traditional values. I.e. nationalism. Yeah. Yeah, national identity. I.e. The, nat- the natural bonds that people feel that separate people with their as local well. community. With their own community that separate them from other people, but not in a, a, an exclusionary way, let's say. But, you know, everybody with their own identity and obviously that those identities exist, and them co-op- cooperating on, in, uh, in the ways that they, they can, but nobody being subsumed into one, like Lavrov said, a melting pot, and then everybody with a monoculture, uh, uh, mono-values, basically, mm. uh, that are imposed by, imposed by someone back in Washington, D.C., or wherever they are. Um, so this is the nominal New World Order that, that people, a group or groups have, are desperately trying to make a real fact on the ground have the world been, yeah. over. Have been, to some extent. Well, I suppose what we would describe as a counter or a counter... A counter yeah, it is a counter-moving. It's a, it's a different movement of history that has emerged in recent years is a alternative version concept of a new world order that is in, indeed being imposed by groups... I suppose, but impose is probably the wrong word. It it seems to be a natural function of resistance to this kind of total imperialism, this total view of the world with one set of values, mm-hmm. one civilization. Well, it's important. It's, one, it's important to explain that the new world order, as envisioned by America, was you know started quite a long time ago, and the first thing you got to do is you got to control as much of the world as possible. Uh, economically, uh, militarily, then spread your culture through your, you know, I mean, it goes with with conquest. Economic conquest includes products, you know, products that are tied to culture, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, all that kind of stuff. And communications. Communications, getting your broadcast media across as much of the world as possible. Building the internet. And your values, yeah, and your values and all that kind of stuff, freedom and democracy, you know, fighting terrorism, all that kind of stuff. Um so you start with that and you roll that out as much as possible and then you start, once you've got that that far, then you start to, um, you know, you start to see it in more, more, maybe more insidious, more subtle, more personal uh, values amongst the population of the, of the, of the countries of the rest of the world, you know. 
uh, so your plan is a homogenization of the world along your cultural value lines. And of course, you know, the cultural values that are promoted by the current, or not the current, but the, the establishment in Washington that's been there for quite a long time and transcends administrations isn't very positive, you know. It's, well, if you want to know what it is, it stands in direct opposition to conservative values in America, as we've seen. So whatever the opposite of conservative, traditional conservative Christian values in America are, that's what they stand for. You know, transgenderism, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that even extends to kind of like transhumanism and all that. So it's all trans, trans something, right? Everything's trans. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, it's not good from the average, person point, average person's point of view, you know what I mean? Because the vast majority of people have grown and lived up in countries where they have a national identity, they have national values and cultural values, you know, that are particular to them, but they're also shared in a, in a general way with a lot of other countries. But those are the things that are being eroded and have been being eroded. Consider the attack on populism that, that started when, what, five, six, I don't know how many years ago, five, six years ago, populism became a bad word. And populism is nothing more than what the majority of the people in that country want. The ones who have strong values, who feel strongly about something and want to defend it and want to stand up for it and want those values to be represented for them by government, that's populism. They're very, very bad. Trump, he was populist, terrible. Conservative Christian, um, you know, yeah, Basic, the values that people have lived by and lived with for for centuries are extremely bad, yeah, according it, to these people. It's interesting that they frame it always as Trump was lumped in with Xi, um, what's his name, in Mexico. I forgot his name. Uh, AMLO uh, is an acronym. Uh, Putin, of course, um, leader of Pakistan and so on. The, the interesting thing is that they... They they really they really do feel. I think they're sincere in, in their statements that they they feel that this is tyrannical. This is the rise of authoritarianism, of uh, all these these leaders and these the mo populist movement behind them. For the people who are trying to transcend the world away from this, they conceive it as tyrannical because it's it's a it's a stop against what they want. It's. A, yeah, but it's not, it's, not it's not tyrannical. It's what has existed, like I said, for centuries in the popular mind and popular culture in those countries. And it only came to, it only started to be pushed because of the attack on it, orig the original attack on it by, to try and destroy it, to try and you know, water it down and, and call it evil and call it bad. Then it starts to manifest itself because it's like, no, we're trying to defend our values here that we have lived by for, for, for centuries. I'm not talking about like, you know, rest the, the restrictive values necessarily. People are can be easily led to remove, you know, with a bit of reasoning to remove certain kind of cultural norms or values or attitudes that maybe were a bit racist or sexist, whatever. They can remove those, but there's a line. Okay, well, we understand that, you know, being mean to other people or being mean to other cultures or other races or whatever is bad. Okay, if that was part of our history, okay, we'll stop it. But there's far more to our culture. That's only a small part of it. There's far more to our culture that is, that is benign, that we're not willing to let go of. And they push back against the attempt to get rid of all of it. And then they're called tyrannical for doing that. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> the explanation you just gave is the common sense explanation. I'm yeah. telling you that when Bush said our mission is to end tyranny in 2004, hmm. his conception of tyranny is anything that would challenge what is objectively our tyranny, but of course, which we see it as bestowing 
well, flowers and peace and democracy. Only. Yeah, of course. No, well, no, he, he, he saw it as that as well, at least if he was asked that's what he said. I mean, in the court, he said the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nature and culture, i.e. to end tyranny. So anything that's not democratic uh, or freedom-loving or whatever is, is tyrannical, you know. You're reading into it like behind, behind the, the, the kind of deeper thing, which may, he may ascribe to, but certainly not publicly. The public face of it was... We're spreading freedom and democracy around the world here. Anybody who's a dictator, who's abusing their people, as we decide, as we, we, yeah. we think, they're, they're the, that's what we're trying to fix. So it had to be, a, it had to be presented to the people in a way that was palatable, right? Yeah, I, I suppose I, I'm thinking of Caesar here, Julius Caesar. And there are many examples between him 2,000 years ago and now. Caesar was framed in his time and for all history thereafter as an evil tyrant. Yeah. And the specific beef with him was that he was tyrannically imposing, as they saw it, the optimists, his opponents, his political opponents in the Roman Senate, they saw it, he's imposing his tyrannical will on us. Mm-hmm. Objectively, that wasn't what was happening. Mm-hmm. He was trying to equalize the world. Mm-hmm. He was trying to make things fair for most right. people. He wasn't trying to rob the actual tyrants of their privileges, of their massive wealth. He was just trying to make it a little bit fairer. And they went freaking yeah. ballistic. And he has been marked for all time after that as a tyrannical dictator mm. because from the point of view of his the political opponents. opponents, that is what tyranny is. Yeah, I know it's them, warped, yeah. it's pathological, it's psychopathic. Yeah. But so in this, in this case, what you're saying is that when, when Bush to, and, and the rest of them all talked about uh, you know, spreading freedom and democracy. That's just a sop for the p- population. And then when he talks about the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world, from his his insider Washington establishment perspective, the guys in the US sitting on high on the hog type thing and ruling the world, any opposition is tyrannical. Not it doesn't have to be like dictator or anything <clears throat> bad. They'll turn him into a dictator if they have to. Yeah. But it's any opposition to their. Uh, unrivaled power, basically. Yes. Which is what we talked about previously, right? Yeah. That and, no challenge. And that has included throughout the 20th, 20th century going to the extreme of if the population of a country democratically yeah. looks like it's going to the way that. we don't like, yeah. i.e. Mossadegh, democratically elected in Iran as prime minister, secular, all, you know, normal, would have been, you would think he would have been ideologically perfect mm-hmm. for the Anglo-American and even the Israelis uh, in the 1950s. no. They actually went to the point of overthrowing and installing an actual dictator so that the overall movement of that country's progress mm-hmm. would not go in the direction of the tyranny as they saw. In the nationalism. Yes. Na- nationalism, basically. Yeah. National identity, our country, our borders, our resources for us. We'll do business if we can or on the, on the basis that we're, it is good for us and good for, you know, mutually beneficial. But... We're not being absorbed into any monoculture or any kind of like um, Pax Americana or whatever. We're not doing that. We have an identity. We're a separate people. We're a separate country. We're sticking with it. That's tyranny. Yes. To them. To people who want to rule the world. Of course it is, yeah. Tyranny, in in that specific instance, tyranny, and and it's lasted half a century, at least 70 years now at this point. It's um, Arab and other Middle Eastern countries thinking that they're going to be able to govern what they do with their resources mm-hmm. yeah. as opposed to us. Yeah. Because we know best. It's a we block. have a grand vision of the world. Listen, you don't understand. We have a grand vision of the world that, that sees us owning it all or having significant control and power over as much of it as possible. And anything that stops, stands in our way, i.e. nationalist ideologies or nationalist ideas, 
uh, is tyrannical. Of course, they call it tyrannical because it feels bad to them. We don't like this. So let's call it a bad name, you know, tyranny. Let's call it terrorism. Let's call it dictator. Um, Yeah. So how do we get on to that? Where were we at the beginning? Well, um, can you put back up that uh, BBC article, Getting Inside Putin's Head? Go for the, just the headline. <clears throat> so the press is full of this kind of stuff. Getting Inside Putin's Head. What's going on in there? Um, how come we didn't see this coming? Well, we kind of did, but not as we expected. You know, um, And I've been doing it for 20 years about Putin. Here's the thing. It's been in plain sight since the mid-1990s. Um, specifically as it concerns Putin and Russia's goals, he said it all. all his speeches have laid it out. Mm-hmm. His uh, written papers have laid it out. Um, it, it's, it's so obvious. It's easy to figure out what he wants because he has said over and over yeah. what he wants. But it doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's like the ideological blind spot is created from, well, that's what he's saying, but what does he really want? Now, it, what he's trying to achieve in Ukraine and elsewhere, Syria, five, six, seven years ago, it's the same thing. He says what he's going to do. Then he does it. Well, go down, scroll down to the picture of Putin and Macron, actually, because he has that in there, down at the bottom, or halfway down. There. No, next one. Or maybe further down. There you go. There's the Putin isolated because Macron was too scared to take PCR test. Uh, but just above that, that paragraph, another source or readouts. This is another source for how Putin is isolated and crazy. Another source are readouts from the, those who had, had who have had direct contact, such as other leaders. In 2014, Angela Merkel reportedly told President Obama that Mr. Putin was living in another world. I don't doubt he was. Right. Just one that Angela couldn't understand. Yeah. And it's coming to fruition in a certain sense. So the first steps towards that other world are starting now. Yeah. And this speaks exactly to to what I'm trying to say. He he hasn't hidden. He's elaborated very explicitly. He made it very clear to Angela, obviously. Well, she can't understand it. Well, he made it clear to her, but she couldn't understand it, yeah. She couldn't understand because ideological blinkers are in place. And it, this affects West, almost all Western leaders. You occasionally get a candidate for an election in the West who gets it, wants to be closer to Russia, okay. talks about and, multipolar world. And they get excoriated for it. Yeah, and they simply don't make it. They don't get into uh, anywhere. I think Putin, uh, not Putin, but Trump had a good idea, and he, he Cons- broke the mold by actually getting it to power. Cons- but then we saw the incredible difficulty he had. Do you remember Orban? Orban gets it. But remember uh, what what he was called by? Who was it? Was uh, that half drunk? Uh, yeah, Junker. Junker, the EU president. He, yeah. he jokingly is on tape on, yeah. at one of the meetings that, on tape saying, "Oh, here comes here comes the dictator." Here comes the dictator. So and he said it jokingly. Ju- yeah. And Orban heard him obviously, and he was joking, and it was all a good laugh. But that ex- <laughs> exposes uh, their attitude. Orban is a nationalistic minded kind of leader of Hungary, and Hungary or is a country where people are, you know, just more resistant, like Serbia, more resistant to this whole Pax Americana, cult, monoculture, Coca-Cola, yeah. and uh, do what we say or else type attitude, you know. Yeah. Uh, so you're a dictator. 
jokingly <clears throat> sometimes, but sometimes seriously. Like now with Putin, he's a real dictator. Yeah. Orban's just that kind of jokey dictator. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Samuel Huntington. We've, made, we've discussed him over the years. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, I think we're we're a bit guilty of it too. Most people misunderstood the point, his core point that he was making. So, in nineteen ninety, early nineteen nineties, Francis Fukushima writes Fukushima Fukuyama. I forgot his name. Fukuyama. Italian, uh, not uh, Japanese American academic writes the famous paper, "The End of History," mm -hmm. in which he says, "Here we are now. The USSR has collapsed. The ideological Cold War is over." We are now in a time where clearly market forces have won. Neoliberalism will spread. Liberal democracy will spread too everywhere. And that's what he meant by the end of history. There is no more great struggle. This is basically it. The world has made the phase shift into, I don't, I'm not sure if he used the term, but it can, it can be probably attributed, expected that he said, it can be imputed to him. Here we are now. We have just made the phase shift into the new world order. Now, Samuel Huntington came along not long after, in a paper in 1993. It became a book in 1999, but in his paper of 1993, it was called The Clash of Civilizations. Now, um, <clears throat> all he meant by that was a kind of real politic, roughly conservative uh, answer back to the more liberally universal-minded academics mm -hmm. like Francis to say that, you know, history, the end of history, are you sure about that? There are other cultures out there mm -hmm. and they have Haven't different chance, really. conceptions mm -hmm. of how things are. Um, now, in his book, the, the, the cover of the book, the, the original book cover, you've got the uh, crucifix of Christianity, the uh, crescent moon and star of Islam, and the yin-yang symbol representing mm -hmm. the east and that spoke to the fact that he was thinking of at least three in fact he also includes a map there are more, more like seven roughly speaking civilizational areas one of them is russia and the former ussr north america mina the middle east north africa and so on then of course yeah the, the west and south asia with india anyway he published his book in 1999 because of what happened on 9-11 that quickly got vectored. The, the lens that Huntington was trying to convey was vectored into just seeing two, namely the globalizing West and this new horrible global threat of Islamic terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, I say vectored because 9-11 warped the kind of more objective picture that hunt, hunting was trying to create in, from that debate in the 1990s. It warped everything. It obscured it because the way I think of it is like the Islamic threat was essentially manufactured. Mm -hmm. And it was the only clash of civilizations, just those two, so to speak, that the Western uh, unipolar Washington and London crowd wanted the world to see. And it was, I don't, I'm not suggesting they consciously did this, but what it had the effect of doing was uh, obscuring, blowing smoke over the actual underlying clash of civilizations underneath. 
it only showed the clash between two, so to speak. But there are other considerations to take into. They, they probably did it with ease because they'd ruled out Russia ever being a threat at any. But it's not a clash, of, and it's not a clash of civilizations. It's a clash of ideologies. Yeah, although hunting, hunting said it's a clash of cultures. Same um, thing. Okay, really, same thing. But again, you know, are there any? I mean, this is. If there's a, if the underlying clash of cultures or clash of civilizations or clash of ideologies, or whatever, is today, uh, what are you saying? It's the, the West versus what the the real one is uh, the West versus Russia and China or Eastern Eastern country uh, cultures, right? That's basically what you're saying, right? Uh, yes, as a yes, it is. I mean, yeah. most notably, well, let's say at least Russia now, right? Yeah. But what is it? Are there are there serious differences in terms of? Uh, Outlook at a basic level, like a foundational level, are there serious issues of in worldview between the average American and the average Russian? Uh, no. So it's not a clash so. of cultures then, or civilizations. That's what I'm saying. It's a clash of ideologies that's being opposed from the top, and there is a clash, but it's, a, it's the ideology within the Washington establishment of them, that small clique ruling the world and having everybody else subservient versus... Other countries in the world, most notably Russia and China and a few others, who are saying, no, we don't agree with you ruling the world because that implies that you would be ruling over us, which we've just talked about. But here's the $64,000 question. Would any other culture produce a mindset that thinks like that? Thinks like Is there any history of mean, China pro- ever being the hegemon before? Or Russia being no, the hegemon? No. Or Africa? But, but who, who is producing that? Who is it that's producing? I mean, do, can, are you saying that the culture produced this? Or yes. Like the, the Western, the whitey culture? So it's, it's, there's something wrong with whitey? We're, we're back to there's something wrong with whitey? Or are we dealing with something more fundamental here in terms of just like the word we have used a lot in, in over the years, uh, psychopathy or psychopathy? Okay. And then... But is that produced? <clears throat> okay. It, it ties itself to certain cultures that are maybe cultures of excess of extreme, you know, uh, material uh, gratification, let's say, which is, yeah, centered in the U.S. Let's say the U.S. is capitalism and, you know, 24-hour shopping, 24-hour everything, you know, you can be the president. It's very materialistic compared to a lot of countries, countries and cultures around the world, yeah. So maybe it selects for psychopathy in terms of it being, there being, them being more preponderant there, there being a higher number of uh, psychopathic type or that mentality, whatever you want to call it, extreme service to self, extreme selfish, uh, uh, an extremely, extremely selfish viewpoint and self-serving viewpoint in the upper echelons of power compared to other countries. Um, it's hard to tease it out, but I think if you bring it back down to the average, I wouldn't put all that then on the American people and the, 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 the average American, let's say, uh, and the kind of values that they, when, when really asked, the values that they would espouse. I think there'd be more commonality between them and you know, most other people around the world, uh, uh, and that in, in, in truth, the the true values that have been covered up or are or, or forced down, uh, the, the true values that most Americans, let's say, hold to, are certainly not the values of their political elite. That the difference is there, you know, as opposed to between Russians and Americans, it's between the American people and their political elite. If you have to call it one way or the other, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because otherwise you're, you're kind of like, you're, you're tarring in a certain sense. Uh, well, 
No, at least no. in the well, case of America, you're the, 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 a whole culture and 330 the, million people, the, you know. There's a struggle. Yeah. There's clearly a struggle. Look at the extreme polarization in United States politics. Yeah, for sure. At the moment. But that's an example of what I'm saying. It's a struggle. There's a lot of people, and probably a majority of people, supported Trump. Uh, not because he was Trump, but because what he stood for. And it was, wasn't even that good what he stood for, if you know what I mean, but it was yeah. at least it was something uh, compared to what was being offered them by the Washington, Washington establishment. Okay, so then you lean towards uh, being a certain clique of people. Um, and where does that originate in the United States? Well, most likely English. in its English origin. Because who is the West today? All of them Anglo are English colonial outposts. Yeah, it's Anglo-America. Um, with some Northwestern European yeah. allies closely stitched on. Thrown the Germans there. are kind of in there, but Germany could switch first, actually, in the coming years to, you know, dropping out of this. Germany and all France, but anyway, that, that remains to be seen. For now, they're all in lockstep. Yeah. But that international community is so small. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, and it, it's, it, it's, it doesn't have popular support. That's why... There, there's a massive but people are attempt incessant. to clamp down on the yeah. sentiment in the West. Yeah, and they're incessantly lied to and manipulated by this, this clique in, in power, you know, because uh, they know they have to keep them on side, keep them stupid. And by, by keeping them on side, by, yeah, by keeping them on side, that means keeping them stupid, keeping them uh, dumbed down, misinformed, disinformed. Yeah. yeah, and they also have to lie to them about what their grand vision is for the world. Of course they have to. Um, it's freedom and democracy. That's... that's <laughs> Like Putin's been educating all of us um, since at least 2007 with his Munich speech when he used the term unipolarity and compared it to multipolarity. Um, I think the origin of that distinction, of that concept, a counter-concept, multipolarity, is super interesting. I want to um, share something here. I've just sent it to you, Scotty. Uh, this is, a, <clears throat> hopefully we'll just be able to see the abstract. We don't need to see the, this whole paper, but it was written in 2009. Um, <clears throat> it's on JSTOR by Susan Turner. Not sure who she is. I think she's an American academic. The title of the paper is Russia, China, and a Multipolar World Order. Um, can you enlarge the abstract so we can read it? Okay. Mm, oh, not too much. much. It was published in 2009, but that's not what interests us. Look how far back this literature goes. Since the late 1990s, the concept of multipolarity has gained prominence around the globe. Russia and China in particular have repeatedly agreed on this term, ill-defined as it was maybe, and subsequently have included it or alluded to it in nearly all of their joint declarations, statements, and treaties, mm -hmm. dating from the mid-1990s to the present. Fell on deaf ears. At a time when American hegemony is declining, although maybe her peers in academia would have agreed with that. No one in Washington did no. in 2009. At a time when American hegemony is declining and speculation abounds as to... Look, this is interesting. As to which among the world's burgeoning nations will rise to power, that's an interesting thing because even Susan Turner, in her, bless her, attempts to be objective about what's going on out there in the world, has this Western assumption that a hegemon yeah. will rise to supplant it. It's the only way. <laughs> anyway, 
Whereas the power is important to examine, indeed, the renewed Sino-Russian relationship and one of its foundational pillars, the promotion of multipolarity. It deconstructs the definition of multipolarity and applies, as it applies uniquely to Russia and China in an effort to determine the depth of the two countries' agreement. Well, they were concerned back then, yeah. <clears throat> Though the two may agree upon the same solution to the next world order, China and Russia apply very different strategies to achieve it. Yeah, well, that was in, in, in the 19... What was she writing up in the 1990s? 2009. Okay. So she's harking back to the 1990s. Well, it, it's kind of true that in the 1990s, it's, as she said, that the, uh, the prominence... Uh, uh, at a time when American hegemony is declining and speculation abounds... American hegemony was declining for about seven or eight years <laughs> during the 1990s, you know, because uh, it, it, American, the Cold War was was all about American hegemony. They were they were mm. they were thwarted. They were blocked from achieving it. But as soon as the Soviet Union uh, went away, um, they immediately, as we know, set on a path mm. to retaking, projecting America's power. You know, full spectrum dominance. Right. Uh, project for a new American century. We need a galvanizing event that will allow us to project American power into the the strategic parts of the world. Forward I. operating bases. Eurasia, Afghanistan, Iraq, yeah. oil, uh, block against Russia, China, all mm. of that. I mean, they, they didn't and wait very long with their declining, declining and, hegemony. And they used deceptive language. They hoodwinked the American people and European people into going along with it. So, for example, when it came time to dismembering and balkanizing Yugoslavia, they didn't they didn't like publicly cite, oh, look, rebuilding America's defenses. So we need a forward operating base in Serbia or near Serbia, see? So what we're going to do is we're going to go in and blow the hell out of Belgrade and then we'll have it. And, and we'll of course break, not. Break they invented up. a whole story in which they got people to go, oh, my God, those poor Bosnian Muslims are being slaughtered by the Serbs. And everyone, right. you know, waved the flag like the Ukraine today, yeah. got the fields out. And that's how – so you're right. The ordinary people, if given the actual, well, here's what we're trying to do, would not go along no. with this whole unipolar project. Um, and if it was, if it was uh, explicitly explained to them as such that, well, look, here's the thing. The world's a jungle, and we feel that really we're the only people who are fit enough to govern the mm -hmm. entire planet. Mm -hmm. So why don't you all keep paying your taxes to us, and we will be the hegemon. We'll make sure that you, you know, get lots of the spoils from our mission to civilize the entire planet. Yeah. Of course, they, they never speak in that language to their own people. They must deceive them at every point. So point taken, that, that's how – still I wonder how a country, a culture produces like – as if it's normal and acceptable to lie, cheat, and steal, as your man said, Pompeo, uh, Pompeo about the CIA, uh, as a whole freaking way of being in the world. Like, mm. And contrast that with the Russians and Chinese and others. Mm. They sit down as academics, and I'm sure some government people met up as well in the 1990s. China still has not taken off yet. But they're sitting down and they're talking and they're publishing papers. So everyone can read them. Talking about multipolarity, which is basically... How about a multipolar world? Well, <clears throat> what would it mean? Okay, it's it would mean that no one gets to dominate others. What do you mean? That's ill-defined. It means um, we'd all have you know, more or less a share of the spoils. I'm not getting you. That's ill-defined. Uh, it would mean, well, how would we go? And off they go on their papers, <clears throat> and they publicly refer to them as all, in every single Russian-Chinese joint statement since the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. They refer to it. So it's on the sleeve. There's no deception. There's no surprise. 
what's going on inside Putin's head? I have no idea. Yeah. What do you mean? He it's obvious what's going on. He keeps on saying 10, what's going on. 10,000 times yep. since the 90s. But they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to believe it. They don't like that idea. Like, and, and, and that's where the whole, like, in the terms of it being psych, psychopathy in, in, in power and in positions of power in the, in the West and it filtering down, which is the term um, ponderization or the psychopathologization of the population, where they absorb that kind of, um, that ideology of well, the West is best. And we, to the point that they can't conceive of any other type of world, even though it's like you think they should be able to understand it because it's very simple. It's, you know, you know, whenever you, you know, at a picnic, we all share the picnic, you know, that idea, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, well, sure. I go for a picnic and I share my sandwiches with people. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Well, just expand that out to the world. Do you get it? I know. No, it's still defined. No. I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, here's an article, um. Op-ed in the British Telegraph, uh, March 11th, so <clears throat> last week. Oh, it's, it's, it's just, I just pulled it out because it's typical, typical of Western thinking of this. Headline, the free West is in danger of forgetting why it has always triumphed over dictatorships. The byline, China and Russia can offer no viable alternative to the modern world we have created. Mm. We should take confidence from that fact. The modern world we have created where there's haves and have-nots. He really believes that. Yeah, but that's what I mean. That's an example of polarization. That guy, with his, the funny guy there in the picture with his, with his old wrinkly head, he's polarized. He's polarized. He's overcome. He's taken over by evil. Yeah. Yeah. Evil ideology. And anti-human. Well, just let's not say anti-human. It's uh, supremely self-absorbed. Uh, an ideology that's supremely self-absorbed and only sees what the self wants to see. Can't see anything beyond the self. And, and in, in his, from his point of view, the self is the West expanded out to yeah. everything that the West rep <clears throat> represents. And he, as a constituent member of the West, he has to support it all. And that's all he can see. Scroll down to the last, fourth, last paragraph, and we'll get it in his own words, uh, the world as he sees it. Beginning with, led first by... Led first by Britain and more recently by the United States, the West made the modern world. As always yeah. with great changes, sure. some of this was the result of explicit ideas of liberty and law and the need for institutions to defend them. See the U.S. Constitution. I, I agree. The U.S. Constitution was a seminal moment in lawmaking for any group of people anywhere on the planet. But much grew up more incrementally and less self-consciously, which is a very important point. Did, did they intentionally do it or did they happen to be on while, well, mm. he says, the growth of trade or the power of the Royal Navy, the Industrial Revolution. He says the phrase the, the phrase the Industrial Revolution was invented 80 years after the fact. While it was happening, no one was claiming, oh, I did that. Mm. <laughs> you know, yep. It was something that was happening organically, so to speak, in the world and happened to be centered on for a variety of reasons. Anglo-America. Um, Anglo-America. Well, Europe. Europe first, then the Americans. Yeah. Um, and then the next one is diluted. Although the Western modern world, the Western modern world, you see, now he has to make a distinction. We created the modern world. Oh, well, actually, there's a Western modern world because we, I must tacitly acknowledge that the, most of the other rest of the world is also modern. The Eastern modern world. <laughs> uh we're almost continuous, uh, continuously tested and often make bad mistakes. We continue to win. Even the Chinese assault on this model. On, on its model. On its model. 
is not something that the non-Chinese world wants. That's not true. See Africa, for example. Yeah. See Central Asia, for example. Well, we want Silk Road. Yeah, give us new Silk Roads, please. As for Putin's Russia, it offers no viable alternative at all. Only the cry of rage that comes from repeated failure. That's just bullshit. I mean, there's so, so much of that nonsense coming out of the West. It's just like, it's just pure, it's supremely my, myopic and self, self-focused, self-centered. It's, it's, not even, it's not even worth commenting on because that kind of crap is just repeated over and over and over again. It has been for many years and it's just been ramped up to extreme levels in the past few weeks because of Ukraine. But there's one thing, thing about, let's get off this for a minute because we're going on too long uh, on that particular topic, but uh, on it, well, it's pretty much the same topic. Um, uh, the US and its attempts to control the world, as I've said repeatedly, Europe was extremely important. Uh, it's where they came from. And it's, you know, very resource rich and, and population dense. You know, it's basically, you know, they had to hold on to Western Europe. <clears throat> in doing that, and particularly over the past, in the last 20, 30 years or whatever, they have basically, in their zeal to rule the world, they also want to rule their friends and their allies, right? And that's why you have NATO, and that's why America leads NATO, and that's why countries in Europe for the most part, particularly those who are members of NATO, but others also, uh, are, are, are like children to, to, to America, the American daddy, right? They've basically sold their souls to America under American, all sorts of American kind of pressure, manipulation and blackmail and whatever. They basically, America basically took over Europe to the point that at least Western Europe and the NATO nations have no say. They, they have to ask America what to do. America dictates to them what they do. Yeah. America has been dictating for quite a long time to Germany what its energy needs are yeah. what, for its people, what the German government should do about energy for the people, i.e. electricity, gas, whatever, keeping the country running, keeping food on the table. America decides for Germany. And it decided recently that you don't need Nord Stream. Cut it off. And, and I, they cut it off. Uh, Merkel so, apparently would listen to you like with total doofus face. She'd be like, what are you talking about? It's pure subservience. She wouldn't understand you. Uh, Germany does not have any military to speak of anymore. Yeah. Because NATO, right? And what's NATO? NATO's America. Uh, America takes care of all of our... It tells us what to do. It tells us when, when we should buy things. It tells us when we should sell things. And it... Uh, Tells us uh, it, it'll, it tells us that it'll defend us and we don't need a military. And Amer- Germany, basically, that's... I don't have the article here, but I was reading the other day. Uh, at the head of the German armed forces said, listen, our military is in no shape to do anything. We couldn't literally defend uh, our back garden, never mind uh, anywhere else um, right now. So, But the interesting thing in, in that is that having effectively um, neutered most of Europe at this point, particularly at this point, it's got to the point where most of Europe is neutered militarily in terms of any power. It's, it plays second fiddle all the time to America because America likes it that way. It likes to have countries subservient to it. Russia then does what it has done in Ukraine and America finds itself in a bind because European countries feel completely powerless to do anything because they're entirely dependent on America and have been for quite a long time under the ages of NATO, but America's way over all America's forces are way over the other side of the world. You know, I mean, it's interesting. It was uh, it's, that's why it's, they were so scared of Trump, European leaders. Yeah, like, no, 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 no. Going to take NATO away from us. Put up that BBC one I just sent you because it it actually um, 
kind of spells this out. At least there's a little bit of perspicacity in the in, in, in some of the Western media reporting. The one I just sent to you before, Neil. I sent it to you. Uh, What's the title? BBC. Uh, I don't know the title. Um, I'll send it to you again. Um, this one is kind of shows a little bit of understanding but there's a few people with a little bit of awareness war in Ukraine America is learning the art of humility uh, and, and this author whoever it is Katty K says that's a good thing for the rest of the world um, but there's an interesting point here it's somewhere let me see down whether yeah just down below the picture first this well, the second picture it says, well, whether it was the lesson of Afghanistan or the nature of this particularly difficult t- catastrophe, we don't know. But the White House has handled, handled this crisis very differently. From the start, it has consulted with its allies, many of whom were sceptical. There are reports that U.S. diplomats approached Europeans as equals, not subordinates. Wow. The administration shared highly secret intelligence in a manner that was unprecedented. In the months that led up to the invasion, senior White House officials made multiple trips to meet their European counterparts. President Biden made regular phone calls to European leaders. Well, wonders never cease. This wasn't Iraq in 2002. It, was tr- it wasn't Trump's America first. It wasn't Afghanistan in 2021. This was genuine alliance building. So America basically has shit its pants uh, because it feels that it now needs to rely on the countries to do something to have some balls, even though I just neutered you last week. It's like asking your the, the, your dog that you just neutered last week to have some balls and man up, you know. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, this came along at this time where, where the Russians chose this particular time. I mean, certainly in their estimation, obviously it was a, a progression anyway in terms of technological advancement and all that kind of stuff, military advancement. But <coughs> it's interesting that it came at a quite a good time uh, for Russia, you know, to, to, to actually take this action in Ukraine because, yeah, um, they're feckless. NATO is, is a sham. NATO is a, is a military alliance in name only. It's America that has the military capacity and is willing to do anything with it. And if America doesn't want to do it, if America can't do it, then the NATO countries are useless. The rest of the NATO countries aren't going to do anything, you know? <clears throat> there are two points I want to make about this. Biden White House gets to look better such that... It- <laughs> This British reporter takes notice of it. Wow, they're behaving pretty good. Because they're confident that they've done everything they can to prevent any kind of genuine populist (coughs) party from coming to power in Europe Mm -hmm. ahead of, in the years ahead, as we saw in the last decade, at this key time. So they're confident that the elites in Europe will shit their pants and look to them for help anyway. So that's the first thing. They don't need anymore. When they're reading Angela Merkel's personal SMSs and she goes, yeah, I'm fine with that. You know, it's all, it's all good. It's all locked in. That's the first point. The second point is America gets to look halfway decent by not acting like a bull in a china shop yeah. when Russia launches mm-hmm. because America cannot do anything to stop Russia. Mm-hmm. And Russia just underscored the point this week by firing Kinjal missiles at Ukraine. Hyper, the first use of hypersonic weapons up in there, warfare Scotty. that 
America、YouTube. does not have any means of countering. So the only what I'm saying is the only reason they can behave. This is yeah. This is what you were just referring to.、Uh, I don't think it was actually, but it was.、Yeah. I'll explain why in a second. Why?、Um, it's first of all, there's no snow on the ground in Western Ukraine. Secondly, the Russians themselves have said that was a precise、uh, artillery strike. If it was a Kinjal strike, the ground around it would have shown shock waves. It would have obliterated the actual structure of the ground for about a hundred meters all around. A, kin- a Kinjal missile is fired at the speed of some meteors. Well, there's no video of it yet of its impact,、same. but it's this is something else. This thing goes up and down and evades all. It cannot be shot down. It cannot be even properly detected,、mm-hmm. and then it wastes everything. The reason they used it essentially was to hit an underground. I suppose it's what the Americans showed off in 1991. First, we got bunker buster missiles. You know,、mm-hmm. they can go pound all the way down and blow things up.、Mm-hmm. Well, Kinjal can do that on a whole other level. That's that's and. What I was saying was, America doesn't have that weaponry. It does not have a functional hypersonic missile.、Mm-hmm. It doesn't have air defense system to cope with that. Russia declared that in 2018. I think Putin was hoping y'all will listen to us now, won't you? And they didn't. They kind of took it seriously, but they weren't sure. Now it's not a bluff. You know they have the weapons, and you know they have no means of stopping it. What Russia understands, and what this reporter, bless her heart, does not understand, that the United States government. And/or the globalist clique who wields the power through the United States responds to only one thing: the only thing they know, the only thing they project onto everyone else. Anyway, so Russia called us bluff, power,、mm-hmm. pure force.、Mm-hmm. This has been the way since the 1500s, when the West first, Europe first, went out there. Power rules, the stick rules. Everyone else has learned that lesson really hard and really slow, but they've learned it. Everyone else, I mean, the other six billion people at this point on the planet,、uh, it's power that counts, military power, and also economic power. But firstly, physical force. Yeah, well, Russia is using the stick they have now, a bigger stick than America, and so America is getting in line. Hence, the change of t- change in tone.、Uh-huh. That is what has happened. That is the significance of this moment in history. Yeah.、Um, yeah. It. This isn't and. What's going to happen on the surface is it's going to appear because they've no other choice that America is going to accept this transition from a unipolar world to a multipolar world.、Mm-hmm. It's going to accept. It's going to start acknowledging Moscow. This is your sphere of influence, and Beijing. This is your sphere of influence. And eventually, when it happens,、uh, India, when it、uh, modernizes completely and has a billion people in the middle class, and eventually behind that, if all things go well, Africa too will unite. Uh, under the vision of Muammar Gaddafi, which they try to snuff out of a united Africa, one currency, one power,、mm. so that's going to happen eventually down the road too. There's nothing they can do to stop this. This is the objective process of history.、Mm. This is the real "quote unquote" end of history, or the "quote unquote" phase shift of history. But this new world order, then, that you're talking about, but it's not going to happen easily. No, because what's going on now? These sanctions. The U.S. has one last card to play, and it's playing it. They're going to take a suicide pill, or rather, y'all are going to take a suicide pill. They're going to try and wreck the chessboard because everything is rigged. It's rigged technologically through network systems, the internet itself, which is all routed through the United States. It's、uh, rigged business-wise because the American, 
the United States, the NSA spies on everyone, has everyone's trade secrets, has everyone's, you know, kitty fiddling secrets and all kinds of other secrets. And because the primary, primarily uh, most important of those three, they have the financial system rigged. Mm. Not explicitly in America, but it is the petrodollar system. It's partly rigged through Saudi petrodollars. It's partly rigged through European bond system. It's partly rigged through the Swiss banking system. Mm -hmm. They're going to pull the lever and try to bring as many of the rest, much of the rest of the world down with them as possible. The expression that we've seen of this so far explicitly is we're going to collapse the Russian economy. The ostensible reason for it was because Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, we know that's bullshit because we sat here and we watched them say back in November last year, we've got all the sanctions lined up. We're going to cut Russia off from SWIFT. We're going to completely mutilate them. Aren't you concerned, sir, that this might backfire on us? Well, it's going to hurt the Europeans, but we're pretty confident we can uh, uh, fireproof the United States economy from it. They can't, but that's what they're telling people anyway. Mm. They're going to try and pull down the petrodollar system. I'm not sure if Saudi Arabia not cooperating last week with Boris Johnson when he arrived and ostensibly pled... Not, I'm not taking Biden's phone call either. Yeah, that, but that got a lot of publication. I'm a bit suspicious of it. Everyone got to hear that Biden didn't have his phone calls answered by the Emirates of UAE, UAE and Dubai and uh, Riyadh. But there's something I'm not sure I trust the Saudis exactly. It, what it looks like on the surface that the Saudi Arabia will not increase oil supply because it's hedging its bets and or swinging to the east and joining the alliance of um, the rising Eurasian powers. Maybe... But there's also another darker possibility here because when Boris Johnson went and he was mocked by his own media, whenever the British media mocks Boris Johnson, I'm always suspicious mm. because it looks bad on the surface, but usually they just shut up and don't say anything about it. They mocked him that he did not return from Riyadh with a commitment from the Saudis to increase oil production and thereby offset the losses the West would face from Russia's oil supply from no longer. And from, the from sanctions, yeah. Shooting themselves. However, the listen, we just shot ourselves in the foot. Can you help us out? Boris Not Johnson really. had a two hour conversation with MBS in Riyadh, and we've no clue what was talked about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, normally when there's a two hour, Jesus Christ, when Trump had a 20 minute conversation that no aides were with and no one knows what was said, the world freaked out. Well, what were they talking about, you know? Uh, well, Bojo had a two hour long conversation. And I'm just saying that to suggest that maybe. The, the higher goal here, the higher connivance, is that they don't mind that the Saudis, that Qatar, that the UAE make up for the lost uh, Russian oil supply to the West because they want it to happen. They want to pull it down. This is the global economic Samson option. Mm -hmm. The system is rigged by and, this. And they're imposing the Samson option because they realize that they're checkmated. Yes. Just before we get off the missile thing, just go to the Wikipedia page of Sandy Scotty. Uh, this is just a, a graphic of... Um, and it relates to China. Maybe we can get into China here as well. Uh, if you just click on the picture on the right, just to bring it up. Uh, so this is something, it goes back to the 60s, it was originally developed in the 60s, but it basically uh, shows, that, so basically the the hypersonic missile, hypersonic missiles are, US doesn't really have a hypersonic missile that's, that's fully developed. Russia does, but also China does as well. At last year, China, China launched a, a, a like a, a rocket, you know, that the similar rockets that they send up into space uh, for you know carrying satellites or payloads, or whatever. But it carried a glide, what they call a glide vehicle, and this glide vehicle circled the Earth 
uh, once before coming down and at obviously at hypersonic, hypersonic speed right. uh, impacted the target. It was a bit off the target, like by 20 kilometers or something like that, but it basically it doesn't matter because it can carry a nuclear warhead and all this kind of stuff. And apparently, the, the, you can look this up, the, the Americans were freaked out by, about this. They, they're on record as having said, we don't know how they did that. Uh, so they're really concerned about... And the point is that both Russia and China have offensive capabilities that make America's offensive offensive capabilities and their defensive capabilities potentially not very useful anymore. And the interesting thing with this this graph is it shows, just shows the... <laughs> the interesting thing is that the US, the US all of its uh, missile detection radars and stuff that is stationed all across the world, obviously they're focused on the Northern Hemisphere against Russia and China, right? They're looking for a radar. So they're pointing basically upwards, right? Upwards because they're expecting something to come over the top of the globe. Yeah. But if you look at the FOBS, uh, which is the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System, on the left there, well, there's one at the top that, so it, it, it travels unlike traditional ICBMs that can carry nuclear warheads that go quite high in the atmosphere, up to 1,200 kilometers, and which conventional, the radars that they have are positioned to detect. These, uh, these especially the Kinzhal that the, the Russians have, um, flies at lower altitude. Yeah. And if you see the little graph there across FOBS going you know, from left to right there, uh, it reduces the amount of uh, time that the radar has to detect it, right? Because it's flying low rather than high. Yeah. But the, the the most interesting one is the one on the left of the, where it says launch site. It goes the other way. Around the planet. It goes underneath. It goes over the... the instead of going over... They're expecting everything to go over the Arctic. This would come around over the South Pole and come in from the South, basically, and attack hit targets in the US from the South. Now, America has no radars specifically uh, checking to see if there's any attacks coming from the south because there's, certainly from South America, there's no, uh, no n- nuclear-capable country. You know, there's no, no, no nukes coming from that direction. So this is and something that has been released fairly recently and especially in the context of it being hypersonic, like at 10 times the speed of sound. <coughs> uh, even if you do have radar detection for it, it's unlikely you're going to be able to fire any missiles to, uh, to stop it, you know. So this is important in the context of what we're talking about, which is America has been checkmated in terms of its nuclear um, kind of threat compliance maneuver, where it basically can subtly and not so subtly threaten other countries to do what America wants it to do, or we'll nuke you, you know, among yeah. other blackmail tactics that they have. So, um, yeah, so both Russia and China have this capability. It's pretty clear they have the capability, and it's why... Uh, they're, they're, they seem to be doing what you suggest, what you're suggesting that they're doing, which is um, deciding. Okay, well, listen, we we can't force our will anymore, and we may just decide to pull the whole thing down if we can. But that's a big question: yeah. whether or not they can actually uh, pull it down based on these sanctions. You know, and um, this is is a great reset. Klaus Schwab, he's deluded. He thinks he probably really believes this is about greening, greening the planet. Mm. And transcending the transhuman tree, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he's kind of got this messianic vision where it's, there's a quasi-spiritual element to it. You know, it, all the objective process of history is all leading in this direction. He doesn't have an objective reading of history. Mm. That's why it's, it's totally kooky and most people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Mm. The Great Reset in reality is wiping the chest. The reset of the, of the economy, yeah. Yeah, and it's being sold, the to, pe- of the economy. Being sold to people under the guise of saving the planet. But there's a que- global warming, and there's a question open as to whether or not there would be a, 
a collapse of a global economy, you know, because the, the whole problem that the Russians and the Chinese have had is, is America's globalist ambitions. And that's, you know, high up on the list there is their economic globalization and their control of the global economy and their control of other nations through economic measures. Now, China and Russia have been on that and been thinking about that. They've been put in place many different measures that are actually being activated right now in the face of these sanctions to kind of protect themselves uh, or, or to divorce themselves to a certain extent from the Western-dominated global econ- quote-unquote global economy. And there's a question as to whether or not uh, in, some, in, in what looks to be some kind of an economic foobar coming down the, the pipe pretty, pretty soon as a result of the machinations of the West, whether or not everywhere east of Ukraine will, you know... Actually do well. Well, well they won't do so badly at all. You know they won't I mean? have mass famine. Yeah. Well, this would be the sweetest conclusion to this great story of history. I mean, they would be. This would be like enshrined in the history books after in the post-collapsed world, because the sweetest part of it would be that, in their ideological belief, in their wishful thinking, that the globe was ours at that point in time. The West is the world. It's all one civilization. They go and pull the plug, and it only collapses the West. Yeah, it's possible, but. I mean, I don't know what I'm not. I'm not and doing I, I don't. Ball. I I'm don't not, say that joyfully because, as you pointed yeah, out to me yesterday, hello, Neil. You live in the West. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not sure. I'm not doing any crystal ball stuff on what's going to happen or how bad an economic collapse or crisis, or whatever you want to call it, is going to be. Because I, there's there's a big part of. But you love using your crystal ball. There's a big. Well, here's a crystal ball aspect. Well, not really, but it's it's you know, it's you know, given it's talk, looking at it from both sides. I don't think the West. As despite the fact or because of the fact that they're talking up sanctions so much and how it's going to hurt the Russian economy, behind the scenes that there's not actually a lot really going on there, you know? Um, that there's less going on than people are being led to believe in terms of actual sanctions against Russia. Yes, there are some and they've tried to do different things, but Russia has been expecting this for a long time and it's not stupid. The Russian government aren't stupid and Putin isn't stupid. And they put things in place to... Right, to definitely soften those sanctions or to limit the ability that the West has to actually impose sanctions. Now, there's a big thing here about uh, Russian's foreign exchange reserves, mm. of which there's about 600 billion, a bit less than 600. How did half bit, of them bit less than 600 billion. Half of them are in elsewhere. That's normal that you have your foreign exchange reserves elsewhere. It's just a, it's like having a bank account because you do business or you have debts, whatever to pay yeah, for in a foreign country. Accounts. You put it over in, a, in the country where you're paying your debts, right? It's easier. Uh, it's just a simple explanation of it. But um, Russia still has, so it has about you know, a bit less than 300 billion of those foreign exchange reserves in other countries. There's a load, most of them are in France, in the French central bank, some are in the US, some are in London, some are in uh, Tokyo and Switzerland, so, and Switzerland, and some are in China. So they spread them out with all you know the, their major trading partners on where they have debts to pay. Like where basically these are countries who the debt. One of the debts, for example, is Russia sells government bonds, i.e., foreign countries, foreign you know entities, whatever, purchase bonds, Russian bonds, Russian to government bonds. For so they, loans. they put give money to Russia yeah. and buy bonds and then they have to pay back on those. Then they can be ten year bonds or whatever length of time. And at a certain point you have to pay the interest on them and it can be quite a lot, you know, depending on how much um, they invest in your country, yeah. you have to pay pay back an interest. You agree to pay an interest on on the investment that they made in your country. 
Um, and those deaths are coming June. And in fact, just I think yesterday or the day before, there was about 117 million was due to be paid. A tranche. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, in interest payments on, on, go- on government bonds to various different entities. So uh, the question was, is Russia, if Russia can't pay that, then it defaults. It's, it's, it's classically defaulted, right? It can't pay its Which debts. Which the media is telling us is going to happen at any moment now. Right. But Russia has said in response to that, it said, we, we are not in default. We've got upwards of three hundred billion <laughs> in those cu- countries where those debts are, and in, in that country are those countries where, where still those, those debts are due. Well, you can just take them. Just take them. What do you mean we're in default? That's not a default. It's only a default when I actually can't pay you. If you've stolen my money, if you've taken my money, you admit and recognize and state that it's there, but I'm not allowed to use it. Okay, I don't want to use it. You use it. Pay yourself. Go ahead. And if you don't want to pay in the in the in the currency that you know that that the debts are to be repaid in like dollars because America says they what somebody says we're not going to accept that I'm not going to take payment it's a weird situation where you owe me money and you say there's the money over there and I say no I'm not taking that money I'm perfectly good money you tell me and I say no I don't want it because uh, he says I can't use it. you know some bullshit like that basically where some that's what sanctions is you know but. The, in terms of those reserves, those reserves are made up of different currencies. So they have uh, those. They have some. I don't, we don't know the exact the exact amounts, but it's some of it's in in yuan or the Russians have all said you can pay you back in rubles or whatever you want. But like, there's plenty of money. What do you, just tell me what you want? You don't want dollars. You can't use dollars because America will be mean to you. I'll give it in rubles. I'll give it in yuan. What do you want? Sterling. You know. Um, so I think it was kind of actually a smart move to continue to avoid the claim that they've actually defaulted on any of their debts to keep that money in the place where it's right, traditionally right, right. used to repay Russia's debts. It's right there. Take it. Just because you say you froze it doesn't mean it's not available. It doesn't right. make it disappear just because you froze it. And Biden just showed what last month that they will and can use the foreign debts yeah. of another country, which they just did with Afghanistan. For sure, said, well, yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to give half of it back to you. Yeah. Afghanistan, which is trying to save off a famine right now. And the other half, we're going to pay to the victims of 9-11, the mm. families, the surviving family mm. members. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's actually a smart move. There's all sorts of stuff about, you know, what did the, what the Russian Central Bank do leaving those half of their, you know, f- foreign exchange reserves in, in all the right. countries where there could be sanctions. And I think it was I actually... I it was an oversight. It was actually, no, I doubt it. And it was a smart... It was a kind of smart move and... Um, and it means that Russia has the other half within Russia, and it can use that to 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 the primary or one of the main things it would use that to do would be to main trade with the rest. Well, well, no, to prop up the ruble, you know, because yeah. they want to buy, be able to keep their currency kind of afloat as it kind of tanks a little bit because of all the sanction business. Because they attack on the currency, basically, the way yeah. a government offsets that is basically buying their own currency in order to to keep it afloat, to, to prop it up, you know, to stop it tanking completely. So the foreign the reserves they have within Russia are, can be used for that. And then for um, foreign debt, we'll use our, our foreign exchange reserves that are in the, in the Bank of England or in the Bank of Paris or the Bank of France, whatever. Um, so, yeah, and that's what I mean. There's, there seems to be an awful a real lack of teeth about these sanctions, you know what I mean? I know they're trying hard, and at least in different ways, but... I don't think they're that serious about it because they know there's some mechanism, and I don't, I'm not an economist and I don't know enough about it, but there's some mechanism where the, when you, like in France, there's 70 billion of foreign, Russians, Russia's foreign exchange reserves are in France. 70 some billion. of it's cash, some of it's gold. Whatever. What does France do with that? Do you know what I mean? Does it just remove it? Do they, do, that's what I couldn't figure out. I couldn't find out if 
countries that hold those foreign exchange reserves, other countries can use them themselves in some way or other, or if they're kind of like sacrosanct or something like that. I don't know, but there's oh, I think it is. I think it is sacrosanct until now, because one of the statements from the Russians since this was announced was. Right. Well, there you go. You've just you've just proven that the whole Western system is geared towards Fever. whatever Uncle Sam says right. is what goes. Otherwise, we take it. Mm. So thanks for proving our point. We're now going to build an alternative system or continue pushing that direction anyway, yeah. starting with us in China. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that it's almost like we needed the proof, that proof. Not yeah. so much we knew ourselves, but to show our world. population and everyone else. You yeah. have just given us the perfect lesson in why the petrodollar system is it's gone. Yeah. Forget it. It's, we cannot rely on it because you, you flouted the key uh, sacrosanct rule of international business. Yeah. So throw up the McD, JPEG's got just an example of McDonald's closed, as you may have heard, closed yeah, at 847 restaurants in Russia. So the Russians turned the logo 90 degrees and called it Uncle Vanya, which is a B. And... Uh, that's a patent for the registration of the trademark of just turning the golden arches 90 <laughs> degrees and calling it Uncle Vanya and then keeping all of uh, McDonald's 847 restaurants open under that logo. <laughs> <laughs> that, in that case, then, they are nationalized. They are taking. Well, you walk away from it. What are you going to do? Like, and, okay. if you've, and if you've stolen, if you've taken your foreign exchange reserves and you're not going to tell us whether we can use them or not or whether other people can use them to, to facilitate to to resolve the debt. I mean, until you make it clear what you're doing with our $300 billion, we're taking your McDonald's. They also said that those McDonald's will use only Russian products. Products, yeah. <laughs> so it'll be 100%. It'll be a Russian. That, 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 do you know what that breaks? The, well, another sacrosanct rule, which is intellectual property rights. But like Russia's like, well, if you break this foundational Right. Well, we're going to break yeah, this one. You're breaking it all. You're breaking the so, rules-based international order. Isn't that what they stand for, America? Mm. The rules-based international order? But you break the rules whenever you want. Uh, so talk to, us, talk to us about China there. Tell us all about China. People want to know about China. What's, what's going on with China? Are China is China evil? Are they, are they the Chaikoms? Are they going to take over America? Or what are they doing vis-a-vis Russia and this whole situation? Who are they aligned with? Are they on their own? Are they a wild card? Are they just going to stab everybody in the back? Or are they actually aligned with Russia? And are they going to, you know, stand with Russia against this Western attack on, you know, uh, the rest of the world, basically? And just on that point, before you answer, you have to think about that, but on that point about the UN, you heard about the UN recently uh, where they had a vote uh, to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, China abstained uh, and Syria and a couple other countries only three or four countries abstained and all the rest of them or was it I don't I can't remember but only only yeah. no only three or four voted for, voted against a bunch abstained and a, and a lot agreed with so four countries said no China did China say no anyway that's not my point the point is that's a, a bogus representation of what's going on it's again Western media propaganda uh, not telling the full story. The, what you really need to do is look at countries to feel to get a feel for what other con- countries in the world really feel about Russia and Ukraine. You look at the ones who are imposing sanctions and the ones who aren't. The ones who are not imposing sanctions, regardless of what they, way they voted in the, in the UN, is China, India, 
uh, Turkey, Turkey, Brazil, and quite a few other, maybe another dozen different countries who have not have said Mexico. I think is one of them, not doing the sanctions thing. But if you add up China and India, that's not. That's about. It's maybe three, two fifths. Well, it's not far off half the world's population. If you include Russia, basically, if you include the countries that aren't sanctioning Russia and therefore tacitly approve or don't really mind that what they're doing in Ukraine, you get to about half the world's population or a bit more. But if you look at it on a list of countries, it looks very bad for Russia, right? All these countries are either uh, condemning it or abstaining, and only a few are agreeing. But the ones that aren't sanctioning it and they're going to continue to have uh, um, do do business as normal with Russia which obviously facilitates, you know, Russia to continue to be, uh, to continue this push, what appears to be a push to create a, a parallel or an alternative global economy that's, you know, not exclusively in the east, east of, of, of Europe, but certainly a, a big chunk of it is um, in the east when you, when you consider the, the, the economic and, and population uh, size in terms of China and, and, and India. Um, but there's also Brazil down in South America and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, the West versus the rest. Yeah. You know, I mean, but my point is that Russia can... Uh, see The way seems open for them to successfully continue to sustain their economy and, and, and engage in, in trade, global trade, just not necessarily with... America or European countries, as long as they decide that that's what they want to do. But there's plenty of other people in the world uh, that Russia already has strong partnerships with and has already has a strong uh, strong trade agreements and, and, and strong trade with. So uh, the idea that they're going to take it down, take Russia down, destroy it through their sanctions, it's, it's talked up so much, but it doesn't have a lot of teeth or a lot of... No, it's, it's, it's pathetic. Um, last week, India announced they would buy 3 million barrels of crude right. from... Uh, Russia, yeah, and the White House press secretary, Jen, God help us all, Saki, yeah. Um, when I, when asked about that, does the White House have any comment? Said something like, "Well, you know, India probably wants to think about it, its place in history. You know, um, <laughs> how how it looks, that kind of stuff. How it looks L- to who? Like this is an Instagram moment, yeah. you know, and that that's just the superficial trumps." the reality of trade and war and peace, you know, the hard strategic decisions that a leader like Modi makes when he goes to do business with Putin. As if the optics, you know, that's, that's again, that's the, that's the Western projection of our time where optics are everything. Yep. And reality yeah. is, reality is just a nebulous thing, you know, that can be undone with a couple of weeks of intense media campaign. Reality is something we create through perception yeah. and through propaganda. That's all they have left. And many people are falling for it, but if you look behind the scenes, you find it's the great and terrible Oz, you know, i.e. that little guy pulling the levers behind the curtain, not the big scary image on the on the screen, you know. Yeah, so... Can you put up the, the last link I sent you? I just want to look at the chart at the top of this. Um, the the <clears throat> 2,000 years of economic history in one chart. So scroll down a little bit more so we can see the, the key there. So, um, okay, sorry, go up a little. So, yeah, 2,000 years, one chart. Um, this shows, depending on what definition they use, whatever, GDP of all major powers 
over time, over 2,000 years. Now, they crunched the first millennium there from 1 to 1,000. If you look at the bottom, it's that, just that first space. So it's not actually a, a, rep a time representative chart. It takes key moments in world events um, and plots the more or less GDP share of each major country in the world over time. Also, of course, as, as we know, the, the, there's probably 500 years that don't exist there in the first millennium. But anyway, because um, that includes the Dark Ages. But you see there, look at, look at this state of the world from uh, 1 AD through to 1700, 1820 even. India, India, in fact, was larger than China yeah. for much of that. They were the power. That, that's where quote-unquote, hegemony resided, South and East Asia, for the longest time. It only changes when you see the two blues, United States and United Kingdom, become, come online. First Britain, of course, Industrial Revolution, and other Western European powers. And it warps. The, the whole shape of it changes. They come to dominate global GDP. Mm -hmm. That peak of the two blues, together with France, is 1950. So they, they, all three, all Western European countries, and then the US after a civil war. Germany, Italy, and Spain, yeah. Ride the wave, the objective wave. It's not so much theirs. It's not nom they, they still claim it, like we saw with that telegraph. Oh, the modern world we create. Well, you, you rode a wave of something. That's, a, that's a, a coincidence of factors, in my opinion. But anyway, so that's the Industrial Revolution, and they rise up. And the very peak of it is just after World War II. You see their 1940, 1950 peak. That was the unipolar moment. Because everything from then on is the decline in the GDP share of Western European, of Western countries. Uh, they maintained, you know, altogether, if you, only if you include Russia, if you exclude Russia... You see there, Germany is the last Western country. So they, since, at least since 2000, after which there's a drop-off, their share of global GDP is 50%, is half. Now it's smaller. 2017 is the last date they give. And you can see there on the top, China is almost back at the kind of level it had a thousand years ago. A thousand and even less, 500 years ago. Mm. Um, I, I've seen other analyses as well that uh, China's GDP growth percentage of the world trade was still slightly higher than what it is today, just before the opium wars of Britain mm. in the 1830s and 40s. Mm -hmm. It was the, is known at the time as the economic powerhouse of the world. Um, one of the quirks of history that created this huge... Um, mountain of the share of Western uh, GDP in the world in our relatively modern time is partly because Europeans, one of their motivations for get, breaking out of Europe was because they were trying hard to find hard currency, gold, silver, mm -hmm. the Spanish and the Portuguese in the Americas. Their obsession with gold and silver, why was that? Well, obviously... It's valuable in itself, but why? What was the specific need for? They were having a trade issue with China. China would and India would only settle for hard currency. Well, why is that? Why couldn't they just trade goods? Because they would bring their goods over the Portuguese to India, and then later the Spanish, and then the Dutch, Dutch East Indies, 
And the people over there were like, really, the quality of your stuff. So you've got some wall stuff. Um, oh, that's interesting. You've got some new technologies. We haven't seen this version of the compass before. Well, interesting. Oh, that's a printer to make paper. Well, we actually have a printer too, but yours is interesting. Yeah, but you know what? We really want hard currency from you. Yeah. And that was an enormous driver of the need to get hard currency to settle trade with, with the Eastern countries because they weren't impressed by what Europeans had to offer. Mm-hmm. They trade. had it all themselves. And, better, yeah. um, and you, you then come forward a little in time and the British were like, no. Let's, let's take them out. Let's do something about this. And says, You're going to accept opium as currency trade for tea and the whole opium war started. And that was the beginning of China's disgrace. As they see, as they see it themselves, a century of humiliation. Um, I think it's so hard. For, well, it's, it's hard for us to conceive of it because we're born into a world that appeared to be like this forever. Mm-hmm. But in fact, as you see, this is really only a moment in time. Yeah, the real. Um, it's a bit like interstitial. Uh, it's a status. Interstitial um, ice age. Yeah, you know, the default is actually the world is predominantly in ice age conditions. Most of Europe and most of North America is under miles of ice most of the time. We happen to be living and flourishing in a time where there's a melt. Um, it's similar with the global, um, the balance of power globally. So it's going back to the east anyway. You see there, there's a natural ongoing process afoot. It's just being instrumentalized more now. Now that China, in their case, has a, a very cohesive government, a very cohesive society mm. around an ideology that is indeed partly, in large part, communist officially. But as Xi Jinping says nowadays, it's communism, comma, with Chinese characteristics, mm. which is really to say we're dropping a lot of the kind of crazy cultural revolution stuff and we're bringing back our history. We're trying to... That, that's an important point that I can't really gauge the extent to which this process has taken place in China, except through its movies. Mm-hmm. It's been making a lot of films. It's got a burgeoning movie uh, industry, especially with historical films. There's a freaking hunger in China for information about, you know, the old periods, the Qing dynasty, the Ming dynasty, mm-hmm. even the, um, the dynasty where the Mongols ruled. And then going back before that, the Sung dynasty was super powerful. Um, uh, all the way back to the Three Kingdoms and the Han Dynasty. So it's the rise of nationalism. It's the rise of that, but and the process of getting to that is to reconnect with your history, to get to to go into history, to get an objective picture of who we are and where we came from. So, and so yeah. to use that to inform policy today. Look at Putin. For God's sake, the man is a man of history. I don't just mean what he's doing. He's there's a. A certain English philosopher, actually, not well known, he should have been because he was brilliant, um, Robin Collingwood. And he describes, um, he saw history as the true science of um, human nature. And part of what he meant was by that was that to get a true insight into who you are, and this can be scaled out into who we are as a tribe and into who we are as a country, and who we are as a Western civilization, it's all scalable. The way to do that is you must have a true understanding of your history. And for that, you must have the courage to not believe a lot of the assumptions you've been raised with. Because you will find, if you are genuinely sincere about going going into history, that much of it is dross, it's false, it's misunderstood, it's bullshit. It's mythos. It's mythos. Um, 
And the, the only way, the process of doing that is to build insight into oneself, how one thinks, why one thinks that way, and so on. And mm-hmm. this, then it can be mapped out. Anyway, uh, the, key, the way it relates here is that Collingwood said that the man who goes into history um, if he asks the right questions and he does it honestly, he can come out with, the, he didn't say perfect, but the, the objective solutions to problems he faces today. today. Putin is obsessed with history. He, 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 the stuff that we all heard him say in the more recent speeches, that thing, for example, that last quip just before he said, and so I, I have declared a special um, military, military operation. operation in Ukraine. The last thing he said, almost with a grin on his face was, so you want the decommunization of Ukraine? Well, as he just explained in the last preceding 10 minutes, your country, Ukraine, was put together by communists, the, the early Bolsheviks, Lenin, that idiot, <laughs> and others after him, all the way up to, um, not Brezhnev, the guy before him, when they stitched together parts to create the Soviet Republic of the Ukraine. So I will help you decommunize this right. country. As, as the inheritors of that tradition and, and the new Russia, I and will that, help you de- decommunize, that, yeah. That, 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 was, that was taken as, oh God, he's gone full tanto, to quote Ben Wallace, the British uh, Minister of Defense. Yeah, he's just lost it. He's just going to take all of Ukraine. Actually, the man has written an extensive article, which Wallace knows about, actually, that was published on the Kremlin website last right. year. It's unbelievable because... It's like in a history of Ukraine, as Russia sees it indeed, but he try, you get the impression he's trying to be objective because part of what he says in it is that Ukraine was ba- in its current modern form was created by Lenin and the Bolsheviks and he has reasons for why they did it. And one of the crazy claims in that article is that Lenin was in contact with American advisors directly connected with the Woodrow Wilson White House. Mm-hmm. They worked out this plan together. This was such an outrageous claim that he had in his article that the anti, very anti-Putin um, outlet in Russia itself... Um, Moscow. Not Moscow Times, although they're, they're pretty anti-Putin. Mm. Um, Medusa, Medusa.io. I think they've just been banned in Russia or something like that because they're so flagrantly anti-Putin. But anyway, last year they said, well... Ha! This is this is going to be easy to debunk. So they fact-checked his article, and they said, "Let's go for the most ludicrous claim." This thing about Lenin cooperating with Woodrow Wilson to to further dismember Russia and create this country called Ukraine. Lo and behold, in fairness to them, and they published it. The claim is true. Mm-hmm. The claim is true. So Putin has gone into history to find a solution. Obviously, there's kind of more to it than that you cannot just have objectivity you've also got to have your pulse on what the peoples who are going to be affected by it right. are thinking i think he has hit the jackpot we'll see i could be wrong we'll see there's been some resistance in ukraine but as you've noted on the show it's very little there are no mass protests against Putin. there's no mass uprising like we saw in turkey in 2016 where people were throwing themselves under the tanks of the people who were uh, organizing the coup against right. Erdogan. 250, 300 people sacrificed themselves to, to stun the anti-Erdogan people in the military who yeah. were trying to overthrow. And they just like, they were overrun. They got yeah. off the tanks and they ripped them out of the tanks. Yeah. You're not seeing any of that in Ukraine. No, another example, <clears throat> another example is Yugoslavia. And when NATO bombed Yugoslavia, bombed Belgrade in uh, 99. 
uh, the people of Belgrade, like by the thousands, all stood on bridges in Belgrade and in other cities in, in, in Serbia, in Yugoslavia, um, uh, to stop NATO bombing them. Yeah. They put themselves there as human shields. Yeah. You don't see that in, in, in Ukraine, you know. And it's obvious why that's not happening, because there's a lot of divided loyalties in Ukraine. That's the complexity of it. And it's it, it exposes the bullshit of the Western media, how they're trying to say, you, you know, the Ukrainian people yeah, united in their resistance against the Russian invasion. That's just simply not true. Simply yeah. not true. You go and look at Wikipedia, like we did on the show a couple of weeks ago. We look up at the amount of people who... Uh, speak Russia, who claim in surveys have claimed they speak sorry speak Russian in in Ukraine, and the the, the significant majority they, if the significant majority speak it on a daily basis, and uh, those who don't understand it, and that's just one aspect of the cultural ties between Ukraine and Russia. So and, and there's many more. You know they, they share a common culture. There are people who have relatives. Uh, many many people in Ukraine have relatives in Russia, uh, and obviously vice versa. Um, so the idea that you know, there's a lot of ambivalence in the Ukrainian population um, towards this invasion, and they're not, you know, they're not happy with their government. You know, what I mean, they haven't been for quite a long time. It's been most Ukrainian governments for the past twenty years have been quite corrupt, um, yeah. and most a lot of Ukrainian people see this Russian invasion as for what it's stated, uh, or for 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 what the Russians state it uh, to be, which is an attempt to remove. Uh, elements within the Russian or within the Ukrainian uh, political and military establishments who are rabidly anti-Russian and who are working directly with America hand in hand to try and create problems and threats to uh, to Russia. And no country in the world would sit by and allow that to happen. And Russia tried to resolve it amicably for the past 10 years almost and America blocked them at every every opportunity because they wanted to see what is they wanted to 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 make happen what is happening right now. They wanted to force Russia to do to to, to take military action because they could use it to smear Russia. Yes, That's pretty much it in a nutshell. And you will not hear that anywhere in the Western press, which is ridiculous because it's self evidently true. Yeah, you asked me about China. So yeah, so let's go back coming to, back to so Russia. But I think part of the reason why. It, we end, we will end up doing that is because, as I see it, indeed, it, it's a simple yes to your answer. They are strategically aligned in the sense that China agrees with this. China supports this um, tacitly and increasingly more overtly. Um, the other the, – the, there's a kind of a – part of the reason that – well, it's not – the reason all eyes are on Russia mm-hmm. from Washington to ours, everywhere, the whole world's is because I think Russia is a bit like the tip of a spear. But that spear is largely Chinese. And I think Russia, Putin, accepts that. Mm-hmm. He has no choice but to. The population of China is about 10 times the size of Russia's. Um, I think... I think China... Okay, and a separate issue is, is it a good thing? No one knows. No one in the West knows. We have, we have ex- lived experience now of Putin's interventions being good. So let's run through them, okay? First one is Chechnya. Uh, horrible situation there with 
terrorists slash, and some of them were indeed independence fighters. <clears throat> it was an independence movement, plus it was Islamic terrorism. They were encouraged by the CIA and the, um, MI6 and Mossad to do what they were doing in the 1990s. Putin takes charge of that in 1999, um, becomes president in 2000, and deals with the problem. He does a famous speech where he's like, we're going to hit them in the shithouse, in the toilets, wherever they are, we're going to whack them. And he's angry Putin. The world saw angry Putin the first time. And he did it. Okay, so how's that a good thing? He just killed a lot of people. Well, he completely rebuilt Chechnya, gave it autonomy, to the point that the Kadyrov brigades that are fighting in Ukraine right now have their own. They're obviously answering in some way to the Russian military. But they're actually formally a militia. They're, they're answerable officially to Kadyrov not to the Russian regular forces. Anyway, so they have autonomy, they have been rebuilt and stable, and everyone's happy with it. So you see what I mean? He put out a fire. The proof is in what he did being objectively good for them, those people, for, people, yeah. for Russia as a whole, mm. and therefore for the world. Universally, it's a good thing. The second thing then is uh, George in 2008. We know what that was. That was in fact an antagonism. It was a provocation by... That nut, nut job, successfully, 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 against Russia, and he smacked him, and because of internal issues of ethnic Russians in Russia, in Georgia, he recognized the independence. I.e., put his paw down, Russian bear paw down, and said. You won't be mistreating the people of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. And he left it at that. He didn't try and incorporate them into Russia. Mm -hmm. But Georgia has been, that fire has more or less been dealt with. Okay. Then the next one is, well, obviously there's Crimea. That will, of course, still is interpreted as, well, he just wanted to say, but whatever. He did objectively prevent all the other shit that happened in Ukraine happening in Crimea. Mm -hmm. Everyone at least agrees with that. They They haven't been bombed or terrorized by Kiev. Okay. Then the next one immediately after that is ISIS. Fire starts there. He comes in and he says, we're going to deal with this. He go, well, first he goes to the UN in New York and he says, do you realize what you've done? Next day, Russia starts um, um, bombing. Caliber cruise missiles rain down from Caspian Sea from the Mediterranean. The whole world's like, holy shit, what the hell? That's amazing. And then fire, ISIS, the ISIS. fire is more or less put out within six months. Obviously, it's still ongoing, but... Yeah, it was put out Assad is still there because yesterday he just made his first visit to an Arab country, to the UAE. Mm-hmm. He's still the president and Syria stabilized. And the terrorism, the ISIS attacks in Europe just went off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, objectively good at every count, whenever there's action taken. What we don't know yet is if Chinese military actions will be objectively good. I think it's a good bet that they will be. Yeah, because they have supported Russia at every step of the way along these. They've always been on their side. They've never been antagonistic. I think. At least. Yeah, I think what people want to know about China is that we need to you need to address the fears that people in the West have about China and the propaganda. Let's the, the messaging they get about China that it's a one party state that it's uh, you know the universal what do you call it the you know the not universal basic income, but the the checks they have on on you know your credit score, basically the credit score system and all right. that kind of stuff, and, and and that it's a totalitarian state, and that when China takes over the world, they're going to impose that on the rest of the world. That's pretty much what people say about China, especially in America. 
the Chinese commies. They're basically commies and they're going to take over the world and impose communism on the rest of the world. Well, they have not once ever, ever done a trade deal or issued a loan with conditions. They have not once attempted regime change in another country. They have not once um, jumped on the bandwagon of an undergoing regime change operation by the Western countries. Yeah. Um, they have a very consistent record on that. In the West, it's, it's such an inbuilt thing that it's euphemistically called structural conditions by the freaking IMF. Here's the loan. You've got to change this and this and this and this and this and this and this. You've got to privatize your economy. Your, your China doesn't do that. There are no strings attached. Except the ones you would normally expect, like, please don't, you know, antagonize us about... Well, in fact, they are explicit about this. I will admit that. Don't bring up the Uyghurs. Don't bring up Hong Kong. And just generally don't piss us off, okay? Mm-hmm. And we'll do trade. Um, the social credit score, that's been debunked really well. And it's been debunked in the image of it of uh, being as totalitarian as people fear it is. Mm-hmm. Um, by that, <clears throat> that uh, Canadian guy in Canada, um, in Shanghai, uh, Mark or Dan Dumbrell, among others, you know, they're English-speaking observers who've lived in China and um, they discuss it and they go through what is actually being rolled out and processed. So basically, now, I'm not going to go any further than that and, and you know, actually defend it as a good thing because right. we're in this great unknown at the moment, this, this murky period where, and I do sympathize with people who fear China for their social credit score system because it does look like in the West, the elements of it are being functionally rolled out right. as a equivalent social credit score system and that it is inspired by China. Yeah. China doing. I don't disagree with that, but he, the subtlety that may make all the difference is that the, in, the intention and the specific outcomes that each of the two sides, China over here in the East and the West over here via Facebook and all of them together, really, they're all one board as far as I'm concerned at this point, doing what they're doing is that they're for different reasons. Some, some small examples that we know for sure about China. Number one, porn is banned in China. Officially, I know everyone can watch porn in China if they want to, but it's not easy to. Mm. You got to get your VPN. Uh, mm. You got to avoid this. You got to do mm. that. You can watch it, and you also you you can you know you can find a prostitute. Yeah, sure, but officially you can't. There are loosely speaking controls in place to stop you doing it, which disincentivizes you, and mm. that's all. Mm-hmm. They don't if they catch you on Pornhub, come around your house and beat the shit out mm-hmm. of you. Mm-hmm. Of course not. They could be arsed with that. But there is a deterrence in place. Now, is it objectively good one way or the other? Hmm. The proof will be in the pudding of, well, how is this society doing versus how is that society doing? Yeah. Okay. I, just, I think it's nonsense. And I think China is just used as a, as a, as a foil uh, for the West wanting to impose these. I mean, look what they did over COVID and all that kind of stuff. You know, and you can't blame China on, on COVID if you know the, the likely reality of it. I mean, what what Western governments did to the populations in, in terms of lockdowns and all those restrictions that were extremely just psychopathic, basically, um, under cover of public health. 
the West has its own Western governments, in particular the, well, the US and Western governments have their own plan to tighten controls around the population that they're fully behind themselves in implementing. And they, you know, they, um, people in the West who see that happening try to, because they can never look at themselves and look at their own government. A lot of people, particularly in America and in Europe, can't look at their own governments and see the evil within their own governments. They have to project it onto somebody else and they project it onto China because China's communist and China wants to control its population and blah, 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 blah. So, and I don't see any, I don't see any reason to think that China is going to try and do what America has been doing for the past hundred years basically uh, like you were just saying they've never invaded they don't have that within them they don't have at the minute anyway they don't have that mentality and certainly it would be difficult when they're in an alliance with Russia you know what I mean if, if there's a there is an alliance right now I mean the Chinese said recently uh, that their relationship with Russia is more than allies you know I mean that's that's going pretty far for the Chinese to come out and make that statement and they've been pretty clear about their intentions over uh, in, in terms of sanctioning and it's like Take your sanctions and take a hike. Basically, it's nonsense. You know, I put up that uh, that tweet I just sent you, Scotty, as an example. This is Liu Jin, is China's one of China's most famous news anchors, and she summed up yesterday's uh, Sino-U.S. talks, which was with Blinken, and I think Blinken went over to, but there was a bunch of them went over to try and get China to uh, to play ball the American way. And she summed it up with, "Can you help me fight your friend so that I can concentrate on fighting you later?" Which is pretty much an example of of. You know, I mean, if she's a, the prime, one of the main, you know, best-known news anchors and stuff, she's saying that as a reflection of what this, you know, the Chinese government thinks and probably what a lot of Chinese people think. You know, so they're not fooled by America's <coughs> bullshit. And America's got some balls, like, on it to come yeah. and try and do that. They did the same thing in, as, in Venezuela, as you know. You know, mm. in Venezuela, after calling, you know, basically delegitimizing a democratically elected government and of uh, what do you call them um, in, in Venezuela. Um, Maduro, um, with the and, and shooing in Guaido, random, and random guy Guaido, and claiming random Gu- Gu- Guaido. Like, I mean, you can't get any more. You can't delegitimize a country any more than making that statement. And then they turn around and go down and ask for, uh, or at least have some talks about possibly lifting sanctions so we can buy your, we can buy your oil again. They got serious, yeah, serious hubris. Like, you know, but, it's, but the, this hubris has characterized the whole trajectory of, of Western history. Since the 1800s, yeah, the, the only difference now with say the triple entente that the British crafted just prior to World War One is that it's happening so fast now that that they're trying hard to keep up. The Americans w- would see that and go, "Well, yeah, it's a dog eat dog world." So of course, I, I've closed the sanctions on Venezuela tomorrow. They're my ally, and then I use them against. Them. That's the way it's always been mm. because. Think back in history. The British create the triple entente of Russia, France, and Britain to, to contain a rising German industrialization that led to World War I. Mm-hmm. I was looking at, from my perspective now, back in history and going, how the hell did these people fall into that? Well, enough time passed between, say, the Crimean War, when Britain, France, and Turkey, uh, then Ottoman Empire, ganged up on Russia. Mm-hmm. And there's enough decades pass and enough things shift around in a slightly larger passage of time that you can hoodwink the Russians into joining your cause now. Joining a cause, ironically, which caused them the bloody uh, Bolshevik Revolution and all the devastation they've had since. But now, with all of that behind us, Russia and China have this knowledge of history. And 
they won't be making the same mistakes. And, and the U.S. is for the U.S. and other their allies are forced to do it faster and faster. Yeah. Three, it was January 2019 when random guy Guaido was the legitimate and Maduro. And it's like, okay, now we close the sanctions on Russia. Oh, Venezuela, no, let's bring it in. Okay, send send an envoy over. We'll re-legitimize him and everything will be fine. And like Maduro so. sitting there going, guys, barely any time has passed. And yeah. they're like, well, no, this is, this is international. This is the way it's always been. And it is the way it's always been. But it's, it's entering absurdityville because it's sped up. And it's whack-a-mole that they can no longer keep up with. Right. Against, yeah. against enemies, People, because the yeah. whole world is their enemy, that, that is no longer fooled. If, if in the new reality, in the new world order, as the title of the show is, China is kind of reigned supreme, like him, or China is the, the top dog, like, there's no reason, people, no reason to think that China will do uh, what America does. First of all, because it's not America, so they're not Americans, they're Chinese, and they've no history of doing that. And secondly, well, you could say, well, well, when they have the power, they might do it. But it's a totally different, the geography of it plays into it, you know? America is over there, at least from the, most of the rest of the world, which is like the Eurasian landmass. It's over there in splendid isolation, and it went around the world bombing and conquering because it needed to, right? Because it was separated from most of the world's resources, uh, and it wanted them, whether it needed them or not, it wanted them. So it, it had to fly off and build 10, um, 10 aircraft carriers in order to facilitate this uh, military domination of you know a lot of different places in the world. But... If you look at China, China, if, if there's a new order, a new world order developing that's centered on Eurasia with China in the top seat, it's going to be forged out of partnerships that are being developed right now against the old world order, which was America and, and the West, the West reigning supreme. And you don't, there's not really a scope there. It doesn't follow naturally that China would then suddenly start to dominate and invade every other country in Eurasia. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What's going to invade India with 1.3 billion people? I mean... You know, there's there's more than five billion people on the Eurasian landmass, which is you know three fifths or more of of the world's population, and most of its resources. And you know, if if there's a new, as the Chinese plan, the whole Eurasian you know kind of Belt and Road initiative, if there's a new kind of world order taking shape right now, on the basis, of, like I said, it's on the basis of cooperation, and China needs to cooperate, and they'll be developing friendly ties, and there's no reason for any in that situation for any country, especially on a contiguous landmass, to go and decide, okay, now I'm going to invade all the people that I just made, you know, that I just created a new a new kind of economic system or a new world in a certain sense with, you know what I mean? And uh, more to the point, I don't think we can, you know what I mean? We're, there's five billion people here and we're, we're one and a half, you know? I mean, it's all just speculation and it's all based on the idea of what people understand America, America having done, or the Atlanticists or the Anglo-American uh, clique having done over the past hundred years. That's what they project onto others. And they can't understand that others might not be so inclined. Yeah. No, the, the, the Chinese, the character of their rise has been the opposite of what the, that broadcaster just said. So she summarized the kind of doggy dog mentality. So you want me to now smack my friend, so that you can smack me later. Okay, yeah. right, get it. The Chinese one is summed up by their own mantra. What about win-win cooperation? How about if we trade with you, America, and we trade with Russia, and we trade with Ukraine? Why not? Long term, all things being equal, that wins. It's it's so much more stable. Uh, it's it's actually unbeatable, and yeah. one of the the military aspects of all this, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, has been key 
to Russia getting the green light, so to speak. I don't ever remember this being articulated. But the fact is, India, in that scenario of uh, a clash, a future clash of civilization between China and India, it can't happen. Because India, under the nose of the Chinese, i.e. with no pushback or what are you doing from Beijing, Moscow sold them S-400s. Mm-hmm. India has total air cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It cannot be attacked. And Beijing wants it that way. Good, you're locked in. And now Turkey has the S-400s. Good, you're locked in. They all mutually want mutually assured destruction, so to speak, because then that ends it. Yeah. It's, there, there can be no hegemon. They're trying. It's almost like they're consciously trying to create a scenario where there can be no hegemon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And uh, I think, you know, Americans can take hope or take heart in the fact that, and Europeans, NATO, NATO heads, take heart in the fact that it's very likely that, you know, China and Russia will be magnanimous in victory. You know, there'll cool. be no reprisals necessarily. They, you know, they're, they're only too willing to, once they've kind of, you know, pushed America back enough that it accepts its rightful place in the world, albeit after a few eggs are broken, as you have to when you're making an omelette, uh, you know, there'll be no long-standing grievances. They won't turn them into a pariah of the world. You know what I mean? Yes, if that yes. happens, I can, you, can be, you can be fairly confident that, that they'll be willing to see you again as their partners type I, thing. And that's unlike hmm. Ukraine. Because there's going to be no magnanimity, is it? Or magnanimousness? I don't know. Anyway, they won't be, be magnanimous in defeat. And they're certainly not. There. I mean, they're, they're on I, the I road to defeat. I don't think the US defeat. will be either. No, but they won't have much, much to do. The US but, I mean, in its in, current in the, form. But the, in the process, right now, Ukraine is not being magnanimous in what is clearly uh, an approaching defeat. Yeah. You know, they're going down... To the last man, to the last civilian, basically. I mean, they uh, throw up the um, uh, 12 MP4, 12 MP4. This is, you know, we we played uh, a couple weeks ago the Paris one where the Ukrainian Ministry of Propaganda put out uh, a simulated, you know, video of them bombing the Eiffel Tower and stuff. And imagine this was happening to you as a a propaganda to try and get the French people to think this is what it's like in Ukraine. Well, this could happen to Paris any moment now because of Putin. Well, they did another one for uh, Germany just to follow on. Brandenburg. Russians Ukraine is fighting for our values. Stop Russian aggression. Yeah. So that's kind of bullshit that, that they're coming out with, um, which is in, in designed to get to keep the flow of, you know, anti-tank, you know, manpad and other weapons coming to Ukraine from European countries and from America, so that Russia's inevitable accomplishment of their plans in, in Ukraine, which, as we've stated, is getting rid of the, the rabid anti-Russian element within the government and within the military, which is fairly pervasive, and just, you know, yeah. letting Ukraine then be a normal part, a normal neighbor country of Russia. Um, they're trying to slow that, trying to stop that from happening, and in the process, ensure that as many civilians are killed as possible. 
because it's very clear that Russia has no malintent towards the Ukrainian people. The the Russian government, Putin himself, sees them as you know as kind of one family, brothers and all that kind of stuff. They just want to get rid of the rabid anti-Russian, which have, have been there for a long time, and they've really institutionalized that anti-Russian uh, rhetoric and anti-Russian belief and attitude in as many people in Ukraine as possible. And, I mean, how would you expect to live... You know what I mean? That, what, what mentality... Israel? Do you yeah, but... It's similar, no? Yeah, except you're not the same people. The at, le- at least us. you're not the same people. Like You know what I mean? Yeah. But you can't even do it internally. It'd be more like as if, if Israel was populated by Arabs only, if Jews were Arabs, basically. You know what I mean? But you just took a, a, a bizarrely anti-Arab stance against your Arab brothers type thing and decided to set yourself apart from all of them. I mean... Uh, yeah. yeah, but that, Israel is only a close approximation, but it's even worse in Ukraine, where they're basically the same people, shared history, shared culture, shared, shared language, and they want to, like, institute, like, in, into schools, you know, anti-Russian uh, rhetoric in textbooks, oh, in songs, banning the Russian genocide. language. Genocide. Uh, De-Russification. Booting, booting out anybody who wanted to be Russian or any kind of affili- have any affiliation with Russian. Well, go to Russia then. I mean, they're basically kicking people out of the country. That's not Western values. Oh. So why is it... I dispute that. Well, not officially. It's not officially on the table. They're officially on the table. There's a long history of Russophobia. The Russians are coming. No, has it's been. not Russian. It's not Western values. It's not, it's not part of Western values to say, if you don't like America, get out of our country. If you, don't, if you're, if you're, if you want to speak a different language, get out of our country. America doesn't kick out Hispanics. Right. America doesn't kick out African Americans because they say, well, you know, I feel like I'm African or I feel like I'm Hispanic. That's what the Ukrainians yeah. have been doing. If you feel like you're Russian, if you want to speak the Russian language, if you want to celebrate some Russian cultural aspects, go to Russia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they expected to have, they expected that to go fine? Well, yeah, with the backing of NATO, with the backing of America, because America wants to screw Russia over at every opportunity and will use Ukraine to screw you over by, by encouraging this nutbag, radical, anti-Russian clique in, in the government and in the military. Yeah, and the cult and in, in society. Yeah. So yeah, <clears throat> and they, they'll use the the trope. Uh, the Russians are coming, as we saw there. You know, the war is coming. You know, they're coming to Berlin. Uh, they're coming to Paris. Yeah, because it is an old. <laughs> it's so old you wouldn't believe. This goes back to like Peter the Great. Um, it was a long-standing conspiracy theory where Peter the Great supposedly died and left a will. And in his will, he stipulated that his successors must take over all of Europe. And it was, it was as false as, it's worse in fact, but anyway, it was false as the Protocols of Zion. It was a forgery, and it was proven as a forgery about 150 years later. But it was actually held up as a key document forming Western European policy vis-a-vis Russia for 150 years. Mm. And then that kind of segues into you know the Cold War period, the Russians are coming, this time because they're Soviets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a really old and it, it's an old fear. It's unfounded. The Russians did once send the military actually to Paris in um, to end the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the Tsar Alexander the First arrived in Russia with his alliance. Arrived in Paris on horseback with his alliance, <clears throat> formally ending Napoleonic Wars. Um, and resetting the balance of power in, in Europe, which had been obviously a war, mm-hmm. non-stop since the French Revolution. Um, and it ushered in a century of stability, more or less, in Western Europe. Um, so the Russians have come. The Russians do come. The Russians are coming today. 
but it's to smack all the errant children and to say, look, that is, this is a playground. But once you start, you know, chucking the, chucking the missiles at us, uh, you know, we have to draw the line. So yeah. we're putting you all back in place. Yeah. That's, that's the history. That's the objective history of versus involvement yeah. with the West. Let's have a last word from Zelensky because uh, he's, he's the man. Uh, he's holding up in um, he's holding up in Kiev, as you can see here. Uh, last man standing, he'll go down with the ship, right? Actually, there's no words in this, and it's only three seconds. But wearing tell, a jumpsuit. Tell, tell me what you think there. Just play it. Dobry wieczór wszystkim. Oh, there's some words. Play it again. Play it again. Play it a few times. Dobry wieczór wszystkim. Something's not right about his makeup. Dobry wieczór wszystkim. Something's not right about that background. <laughs> It's the lighting, yeah. Hang on. Dobre There's something wrong with that. I don't think he's actually. In he's that not there. Is, that's a green screen. But if he's in Kiev, why going down with a ship? Why does he need a green screen? Surely he should just show the bunker he's in, holding out with all the. Hmm. I wonder where he is. It's like it's like where's Wally? Where's Zelly? Maybe he's gone. Where's Zelly? He's gone back into acting. And is this he is par- part of is a he, new series. Maybe he's in Paris, or maybe he's in Berlin, or maybe he's in London, or maybe he's in Washington, D.C. Who knows? But as far as the media is concerned, he's in Kiev with his AK-47 waiting to see the whites of the eyes of the Russians. He's going to be the last man standing. You better believe it. That's the kind of bullshit we have to deal with, folks. Luckily, you don't have to do that, deal with that kind of bullshit. Here, we de-bullshitify... Uh, as much as we possibly can. Certainly the stuff you've been subjected to over the past uh, three weeks now, or more, and even longer, obviously. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, we've gone more than two hours, and people are probably getting tired. Do we have any uh, interesting, probably not, you would have brought them up, right? Any questions? We just uh, generalized chatting in the chat room. But yeah, so thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for chatting. Um, Don't forget to like, subscribe, um, smash all the buttons. We'll be back next week with another show on whatever's been happening between now and then, um, which will probably be lots. And uh, and we'll, yeah, we'll see you then. So until then, have a good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. Thanks for watching. See ya. Can't stop the signal now.